Welcome to Thursday Nights, Episode 3. This is the first episode of the Paragon Tier campaign that we are beginning. A year has passed since last week's episode in the destruction of the Temple of Elemental Evil. In this session, the players will read the story that they have prepared, de- detailing the year alone that each of their characters spent before being start with Lincoln. I've been waiting for this session for like eight months. Uh, ever since we, you suggested it in passing like three months ago I think, I went, oh, this is perfect. And I engineered oh the entire end of, I changed the pacing of the Return to Temple of Elemental Evil so that it would end oh at Paragon. I'm so glad everyone did all their work too. This be awesome. Sorry. Okay, so, so we're starting with Ren or Lincoln. A.K.A. Ren. Uh, uh, where we left off, we had just come into town after defeating uh, the cultists, and Ren has gone out and been lively with the townsfolk, and has retired to his room in the inn. As Ren lay in bed that night, he could not help wondering in amazement at the power that the Doom Dreamers had held. These were, after all, mortal men. They had not been born with this power, they had learned it. <clears throat> the fact that such great power even existed in this world was a bit overwhelming to him. His thoughts also turned to Magini. Where are you, old friend? The sight of his torture in the temple was almost more than Ren could stomach. Even though it had been an illusion, the images of blood pouring from Magini's wounds, coupled with his moans of agony, made Ren sweat as he lay in his bed. As he fell asleep, Ren thought to himself, I must find him. I must know what happened to my friend. <clears throat> the next morning, Ren awoke with a purpose. He packed his gear, summoned his phantom steed, and quietly slipped out of town. He hoped his companions in Hamlet would understand. They were all adventurers, after all. Adventurers must forge their own way. Eventually, all ties are cut. Ren knew this well, but could not help but feeling a bit of apprehension as he led his horse through the town gates. One final look brought a slight lump to his throat as he caught a glimpse of the statue erected in their honor. Ren had a purpose, it was true, but he had no direction. He wandered for days on his steed, always on the lookout for any, always on the lookout for and signs of his companion always listening for whisperings of his whereabouts. Much to his dismay, in every caravan in town, no one knew the name Magini. As days turned to weeks, Ren began to feel disheartened. Perhaps it had not been an, perhaps it had not been an illusion. Perhaps Magini had died that night, and the secret of his location had died with the cult. Impossible, he had to continually tell himself. Magini was a powerful dwarf. No infernal cult could take him down so easily. As Ren wandered, he began to have a distinct feeling that he should head north. It began as a simple coin toss at first, north or south. But as he pressed further, he found himself willing to cross great rivers and valleys to maintain his course. 
Eventually he found himself at the foot of a great hill, topped with a small but well-fortified citadel. Ren looked to the maps he had, but could find no such place marked. Curious, he made his way up to the gates. Who goes there? A loud voice cried from behind the wall. Ren of the Feywild begs permission to enter. What business have you here, Master Gnome? The voice replied. I am an adventurer seeking information about one of my lost companions. All I ask of is a place to rest for a while, and any information you might have concerning his whereabouts. There was no answer. For a long while, all that could be heard was the wind rustling the grass at Ren's feet. When it seemed to him that no hospitality would be given, the gates began to creak open. A man, great in stature, strode through the gates, adorned, <clears throat> adorned in a simple brown robe. He, he introduced himself as Gorm Grayshield, head of the Citadel. "'You'll have to excuse my men,' he said. "'It has been a long time since travelers have wandered to our gates. "'You may enter and take refuge here for a short time, "'if I can have your word that your allegiance is to the light.' "'My allegiance is to whomever or whatever will help me in my times of need,' said Ren. But if it is the dark and evil in this world that you oppose, then our, <clears throat> then our allegiances stand aligned. In that case, said Gorm, let us enter the keep and see what news we can share with each other. As Ren stepped through the gates, he saw that this was no ordinary citadel. There were no soldiers. There were no archers guarding the walls. In fact, all he could see were modestly dressed monks tending to their own business. What kind of a fortress are you running here, Gorm? Ren asked. Bold words for a new guest, laughed Gorham. You are mistaken, Master Gnome. This is not a fortress. Think of it more as a, rest a place of resting. Well, you guys aren't doing a very good job of that either, then. From what I can tell, these men are all working, said Ren. I challenge you to find a single resting soul in this place. Ah, but you misunderstood what I said, Master Gnome. This is indeed a place of resting, but it is not for my men that it was created. After saying, this, Gor Gor <clears throat> After saying this, Gorm gazed off at the northern tower of the citadel for a moment. Then, snapping back to reality, quickly said, but you, not, but you need be not burdened by such matters. Come, let's find some food for you and a place to trade news. Ren's curiosity was piqued at this, but knowing he was a guest here, decided not to push his luck, and instead followed Gorm silently. Gorm led Ren into a dimly lit room with a high ceiling, full of tables, and a grand fireplace in one corner. There were several people in this room already, and more were filing in behind them. This was obviously the dining hall of the, cit of the citadel. Gorm motioned for Ren to sit at his side, as cooks brought out trays of food to eat. The conversation that evening was pleasant. It had been since Hamlet that Ren had met another person whose adventuring could rival his own, but Gorm did not disappoint. They talked about the downfall of the cult. Ren's upbringing in the Feywild, and even Gorm's running with a group of wraiths when he was younger. Although they were entertaining stories, Ren still sat wondering about the purpose of this place. He had been pulled here by some unknown force, and he was determined to find out what it was. After most of the men had finished their dinner and left the Great Hall, Ren decided to try his luck in getting some information out of Gorm. Whether by his own skill in diplomacy, which Ren highly doubted, or with the assistance of the ale that Gorm guzzled liberally, Ren was able to determine what rested in the northern tower. To his surprise, it was not a living being at all. Rather, it was a collection of scrolls and texts describing various rituals, customs, and practices of the compact infernal. They were the scriptures of the Nine Hells, 
A warm, tingling sensation filled Ren. He had heard of these scrolls and books, but legend told that they had been destroyed ages ago. Such things would be fascinating to study, if only for an evening. Absolutely not, said Gorham, and that is my final word on the matter. No one goes into the reliquary. No one sees the texts. You should not even know they're here. <sighs> Damn the ale in my loose lips. I think the time has come for you to retire to your bed, Master Gnome. I bid thee good night. With that, he stood and gestured to the door. Ren bowed in gratitude and made his way outside. He was tired and could use a good night's sleep in a proper bed. But the thought of the scrolls and their power stirred up an appetite in him that he had never before known. This was very dark magic, but the thrill of learning the rituals and seeing the forbidden left him longing for more. He quietly made his way to the room he was given, stashed his gear, and grabbed his darkest cloak. The courtyard of the citadel was dark and empty. Ren had no trouble making his way across unseen. When he reached the north tower, he found a guard blocking his way. Using his attunement with the arcane, he shifted into invisibility and began muttering an incantation. Moments later, the sound of clanging pots could be heard around the corner. When the guards scurried away to see what was causing the commotion, Ren passed through the tower doors with ease. Too easy, he thought to himself. Inside the tower was a winding staircase, leading up to a door on the fourth level. Ren quickly made his way up the stairs and stopped outside the door. His body was shaking with anticipation. This was not a place of divinity and righteousness, but he felt, to, he felt compelled to go on. <clears throat> he opened the door and felt a wave of heat pass over him. Expecting to see lit fires, Ren was puzzled to see nothing but a dimly lit room containing a single closed chest. As he approached, the hair on his knuckles began to stand. The chest was black with strange runes carved into its lid, and horrific pictures of torture and death adorning the sides. The chest lid opened without a sound. Inside, Ren beheld many scrolls and texts, all with glowing runes dancing across the parchment. He lifted one of the scrolls and began to study the words, images of demons and fire searing into his mind. The next morning, the citadel was in a state of panic. Strange noises had been heard during the night, and the dawn sky was blood red. And now their gnomish visitor was nowhere to be found, though his gear was still in his room. Remembering his drunken slip of the tongue, Gorm prayed that his guest was simply taking a morning walk outside the gates, but his heart told him differently. He summoned five of his strongest men and made his way to the tower. When he reached the highest room, there sat Ren, in a trance with fire in his eyes, unable to put down the scrolls he was feverishly studying. Master Gnome! This is a great evil you have committed this day. Put the scroll back in the chest and leave this place at once. Leave? You must be joking, said Ren. I cannot and will not leave. I have only just begun studying these runes. If you want me gone, you'll have to throw me out if you can. Oh, how the evil has already worked itself on your poor mind, said Gorham. <clears throat> I fear what may have happened to you had we not get gotten here sooner. I am sorry to do this, but you must leave at once. A jet of white light streamed from Gorm's hand, enveloping Ren. Ren tried with all his might to resist the magic, but in his tired and weakened state he was no match for the divine power this man wielded. He found himself being pulled out of the room by the light, as if he were tethered to a team of oxen. It was only when they were outside the gates that the light subsided. I'm truly sorry, not for what I have done, but for the things you have done to yourself this night, said Gorm. May the light shine upon you and protect you. With that, the gates closed, and Ren found himself alone once again. How 
dare they deny me this knowledge, Ren thought to himself. There was no way he could just walk away and forget what he had seen. He made his way down the hill and stashed his gear just inside the forest line. There he waited until nightfall. It was a simple thing to get back into the citadel. Under the cover of night, he could simply teleport himself through the gates. Then it was just a matter of waiting for the guards to switch so he could gain entrance to the tower. He would stay hidden in the tower for days at a time, stopping for nothing. At times, he forced himself to break from the tomes to steal food and drink from the citadel kitchen, but his desire to understand this dark power was far greater than physical hunger. For months, Ren continued in this fashion, studying at night, sleeping in the forest during the day if his body demanded it, all the while growing more and more powerful as the fires inside him burned hotter and hotter. After a particularly long study session, Ren began to walk down the stairs towards the tower exit. In his state of exhaustion, coupled with his wandering mind, he forgot to use caution when passing through the door. The light of the midday sun burned his eyes, and he heard the shouts of men declaring that there was an intruder in their midst. When he was finally able to see once again, he found himself in the courtyard, strangely unfamiliar to him in the daytime. He was surrounded by men in brown robes, and in front of him stood Gorham. I had hoped it would not come to this, he said. I had hoped <clears throat> you had not been overly enticed by the evil that rests here. I see now that it was folly to believe such things. Look at yourself, Master Noom. Look at what you have become. There is no hope for you anymore. Your soul has been lost to the Nine Hells. I have no choice <clears throat> but to release you from this prison you have created for yourself. With that, he drew his sword and began to approach Ren. Release me, you fool! Did you know, do you know the power that is kept in that tower? Do you honestly think that you can stop me? You are but a man. I wield the power of the Compact Infernal. Perhaps it is my turn to remove you from this citadel. At this, Gorm began to charge Ren, but stopped dead in his tracks. Four great demons appeared before Ren, their bodies glowing red as if they were made from embers pulled from the forge of Therizdun. The points of their teeth and claws glistened in the midday sun, and, their, and in their eyes could be seen flames hotter than the fury of a thousand restless souls. Each wielded a mighty fiery sword and a white-hot dagger, as if they had just been pulled from the smith's anvil. "'You think this scares me?' said Gorham. "'I have faced evil ten times greater than you. Your soul will burn for these atrocities.' He charged the demons. "'For the light!' His words were cut short. The demons were quick to react to this threat. They immediately surrounded him, thrusting their blades into his torso in unison. Boiling blood poured from Gorham's wounds as he fell to the ground. He tried to speak, but only liquid fire poured from his lips. Black spots began to appear on his body. They grew larger and larger until they too burst into flame. Gorm's body was being consumed by fire from the inside out. There were no screams, no thrashing. A lifeless body being turned to ash was all that lay before Ren and his minions. Pathetic, said Ren as he turned to face the rest of the men. Does anyone else wish to remove me from these walls? Anyone at all? Silence fell over the citadel. No one dared follow in the shoes of their leader. Well, then it is settled. I am not an unfair gnome. I wish for life to hear to continue as it always has, with one slight change. I am in charge now. No one enters these gates and no one leaves. If you feel that these are unfair terms, speak now. Silence continued to dominate the crowds. Excellent. I think I shall return to my studies, have a meal brought up to me as soon as possible, and bring my gear from the forest edge. 
Bar the gates and continue about your business. I do not want to be disturbed while I am studying. I'm in a good mood right now, and I fear I may become agitated if I am disturbed. Are we clear? There was a mumbling of yes throughout the crowd as people scurried off to continue in their tasks. For months, Ren ruled his tiny citadel with an iron fist. Fearful of his fiery touch and the blades of his minions, the men did not dare disobey their new master's command. Ren spent all of his waking hours in the northern tower, poring over the scrolls and tomes. Even when he had read them all, he began to study them once again. His desire to learn more his desire to learn more grew alongside his immense power. The men never bothered Ren while he was studying. It was the cardinal rule of the citadel. They would often hear mutterings of incantations or moans of agony from behind the closed doors, but they dared not interfere. Perhaps that was why Ren was so irritated when he heard the chamber door open one morning. Who dares interrupt me? You know I am not to be disturbed! Perhaps you'd be willing to take a break to chat with an old friend. Ren whipped around at the sound of the familiar voice. Magini, he exclaimed. How have you been, old friend? I've been searching for you for what seems like an eternity since the vision I had of your torture. Aye, a miserable time that was, said Magini. But I survived, as I always do. But it concerns me that it has taken you over a year to find me. I have not been difficult to find these past months. And in fact, isn't it I that have found you? I fear that you are not being honest with me or yourself right now, old friend. You know, you make a good point, said Ren. How did you know I was here? I have not left these walls in some time, and the men here are busy with their work. They would not have had time to venture out to the nearest town. I was contacted in a, <clears throat> I was contacted in a vision, said Magini. You underestimate the power of the servants you employ here. I was told that you were out of control, and I was the only one that could stop you. Is this true? Are you the sadistic maniac they describe, or are you still my friend and apprentice? Those insolent wretches, said Ren. How dare they go behind my back and summon you here? I suppose they told you of the tomes as well, then. Well, you cannot read them. Only great minds such as mine are capable of handling such power. Great minds, said Magini. Old friend, you are but a child in the ways of the divine. Do not be so hasty to call yourself a master. No one can master this devilry. This is evil magic. No good can come from this thing that you have done. And I suppose that you'll be the one to stop me then, said Ren. Don't make me laugh. I am a master of the Compact Infernal. The very essence of the Nine Hells flows through my veins. I am a hundred times the invoker you are. Your powers are nothing compared to mine, old man. With that, Ren, lo- <clears throat> With that, Ren let loose a fireball from his clutches. It flew across the room and was stopped by a beam of light emanating from Magini's hand. You must pay for the evil you have committed here, old friend, said Magini. You know the law. All must atone for their sins, and no one is above the law. I do not take this burden willingly, but if I must be the one to stop you, then so be it. The light, chi- <clears throat> the light channeled from Magini broke through the fireball it held back and dashed across the room towards Ren, hitting him square in the chest, knocking him back against the wall. When Ren got to his feet, it was no longer just him and Magini in the room. His fiery minions had appeared and looked towards the dwarf towards the dwarf with hellish fervor. In a flash, they moved in on him. Before Magini could react, they had him surrounded. As they lifted their fiery swords, the room lit up in a flash as Magini disappeared. Bewildered, the demons looked at the spot where their prey had just stood. 
A great boom echoed in the chamber as one of the minions was struck in the face with a bolt of lightning from across the room. As it disappeared back to its hellish plane of existence, the other three looked to see Magini standing in the doorway. Ah, I see your powers have grown as well, old friend, said Ren, but it will take more than teleportation to save you. As Magini bolted across the room towards Ren, great chains began to slither up through the floors like great pythons, attaching themselves to Magini's feet. At that moment, the ground around the dwarf began to glow red, and a white pillar of fire erupted around him. Over the roar of the flames could be heard the dwarf's moans as his flesh began to burn. But Magini was tough. He gained his composure and began to chant. Without a warning, a great serpent made of water appeared before him, its gaze fixed upon the remaining demons. It passed through the pillar of fire, quenching the flames as it did so, and struck at one of the demons. A great hiss could be heard as the creature was swallowed as the creature swallowed the fiery minion, as if a blacksmith had plunged the fiery sword into the water to temper it. The serpent struck the other two demons with its tail, extinguishing one and knocking the other out the door. It then looked to Magini and dissolved away through the cracks of the stone floor. Magini then fixed his gaze upon Ren. The time had come. Justice must be served. Light sprang from his hands and enveloped Ren lifting the gnome into the air. The light seared the gnome's mind as mortal pain racked his body. But just at the moment he felt he could not endure it any longer, the light stopped, and Ren found himself being lowered to the floor. The fire had left the gnome's eyes, and he felt a sense of peace that he had not known in many months. The room was spinning and he could barely see, but standing above him was Magini. As the dwarf knelt down and took Ren in his arms, tears began to stream down the gnome's gaunt face. "'I am so sorry, old friend,' said Ren. "'I knew not what I was doing. I could not help myself. "'Oh, the awful things I have said and done. Whatever shall I do to make these things right again?' "'Fear not, old friend,' said Magini. "'I am here for you, as I have always been. Together we will begin—' But the dwarf's words were cut short. A white-hot dagger sprang from his mouth like the forked tongue of a fiery cobra. Ren's only standing minion had come back into the room and finished his job, plunging his dagger into the back of Magini's head. As blood poured from the dwarf's mouth, spilling over Ren's face, the, min the minion let out a deep, fiery breath and whispered, The master's task has been fulfilled. It then disappeared back to its hellish plane of existence. Magini! No! Don't go, old friend! Not like this! But it was too late. The dwarf slumped forward as Ren struggled to free himself from his dead companion's embrace. But he was too weak. The room was spinning even faster now. All was going fuzzy. Was it the magic or the tears in Ren's eyes? He did not know, nor did he care. He just laid there crying until the light took him and he fell unconscious. Ren hoped that his dreams would bring him peace, but they didn't. He had visions of demons and fire and the faces of all those that had fallen victim to the Nine Hells. Most of all, he dreamed of Gorham and Magini. How could he have done this to his friends? These were people that stood for goodness and righteousness, and he cut them down like weeds. When he awoke, he found himself in his bedroom in the Citadel. He was clean, and there was a tray of hot food beside his bed. He devoured it with a hunger he had not known in a great while. How long had it been since he had eaten? A man entered and sat at the foot of Ren's bed. How are you feeling, Master Gnome? Too ashamed to look the man in the eye, he simply said, I am well, thank you. Do not be ashamed, Master Gnome. 
While we could not see the struggle in the tower, the entire citadel could hear what was happening. We know of your change of heart. Then you also know the fate of my friend, said Wren. Yes, said the man. It is truly an unfortunate turn of events. But now you can see why these tomes must be kept secret. They are too powerful and evil for any one man to possess. They drive you to madness. No one can harness the full power of the Nine Hells without sacrificing some part of their soul, as I'm sure you now understand. Aye, said Wren. It is for that reason that I must leave you. I know that I have been a monster this past year, and there is no way I shall ever be able to repay you for the cruelness I have made you endure. But I fear that if I were to stay here any longer, the draw of the magic would pull me back in once again. I expect I shall never return to this place. But know that if you are ever in need of my services, please do not hesitate to send for my aid. It is the least I can do to repay you for your kindness and generosity. A few days later, Wren packed his gear, summoned his phantom steed, and left the citadel. A cool breeze tussled his hair as he made his way down the hill. Without looking back, he passed into the forest and continued north. After several weeks of traveling, he came upon the small and quaint farming town of Vernal. Interested in having a bit of time for himself for reflection, he purchased a small cottage on the outskirts of the village. It is in Vernal that Wren's old self truly began to come out again. He became quite popular at the pub, always greeting people with a friendly hello and a quick joke. He was able to continue his study of the arcane using the books he had gotten from Arath. And, although he felt that things were returning to normal, he found himself still hungering for the road. There must be some way he could pay for the evil he had committed. Some way to use this power he now possessed. Some way to control the inner fire and demons without letting it consume him. Some way. So, so that is that is what happened to Ren this year. I want to get the name of the uh, mercenary um, company that was guarding that citadel, so I can know never to hire them. Okay. Where's the mercenaries ever? Ren is a scary mofo, though. Now. Yeah. If he wants. Well, oh, I wasn't thinking of that. I'm thinking of uh, how he originally got in. <coughs> oh yeah. I mean, I guess well, they are not used to visitors. Ren, they're like they're Ren's almost the guards by appearance. Yeah. yeah. Like, and 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 Ren, Ren didn't look very hardcore at first. He was <laughs> he was a simple gnome, and gnomes aren't very big and ominous. He wore glasses. Right. He wore glasses. He wore glasses. He didn't wear. They're he used glasses. to their appearance Probably just scaring most people away. They don't even have to like. But um, at will, summon three demons. That's a bitch in power. If. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. So, I like the water snake too. That was awesome. I'm trying to remember yeah. what water snake's gone forever. I'm hey. trying. Well, yeah, that wasn't Ren that summoned that puppy, but I'm trying to remember what the exact. Do you have the compendium up right there? I'm trying to remember what the exact name of my paragon path is. Uh, I do not know. Is it know. fiery gnome who kills his friends? No, but oh, sweet. Anyway, basically what it is is I have studied the um, stuff. the compact infernal, and I am now a master of the uh, magic of the nine hells. And with it comes many fire-based powers. I can also summon minions at not 
right now, but soon. In I, can, I can summon minions to fight with me. And nice. We don't have anyone who has any minion stuff. That is... Well, Invoker's... Uh, that's one of their things that you can do. Yeah. So that is basically Summoner where can. Ren is sitting right now. Also, nice. he's sitting in... Don't, don't piss off the guy with the... Yeah. Yeah. It's sick with the red yeah. that says hello and tells a quick joke. <laughs> the um, the whole thing with this um, paragon path is that it's very it's very susceptible to pride. If you start, as you could probably tell from that, it starts to work evil on your mind, and if you, it's very easy to get caught up in it, and it takes egomania kind of thing. Yeah, it takes <coughs> a constant. Awareness awesome. and vigilance to stay on top of it and not let the demons that serve you ultimately become your masters. Definitely. Which, which they did for a time, it would seem. Uh, that is the, it. The proximity to the scrolls seems like it would be pretty intense. Intense. Very nice. Be wary of the unmarked citadel. That was, uh, that was nice. Nice work with it. I've heard you were all nervous. You're like, oh, these guys are doing right. That was, that was excellent. I like that. We got to see a little more of Majini. Yes, we got to see a little more of Majini. A lot more. Ma- more we got to, we got to see the rest of Majini. Yeah. The rest of Majini. Oh. The rest of Majini. Oh. That's, yeah. What is this? Something cool? Where is that window over there? There it is. Okay, I'll move that there so you guys get some... Visual reference. <clears throat> Thank you, that's perfect. Then can you get some uh, darts and just like intermittently just throw darts? Is that what Brandis looks like? Oh my god. <laughs> this is Calhoun. This is. Oh my god. This is John C. Calhoun. Who's John C. Calhoun? John C. Calhoun was the vice president under Andrew Jackson and some other guy. He was really, really pro slavery. In a time when a lot of people were talking about pro slavery, saying it's a necessary evil, he said it was a positive good. Um, he was, even while vice president, he was trying to get the southern states to secede from the Union. So, um... He's like, shoot the hell out of here. He is hardcore. They call him the Iron Cast Man. Um, maybe hey, just because really of his picture. Um, he's, uh, the hair specifically. Did, did, did the sunlight ever going. touch his eyes past those brows? Like, it's, did they get uh, past there? Now, okay, now you imagine that, Or did but forever see to, the shade? To make it creepier, Brandis has a smile on him all the time. Oh and my his god. Cry, he's like having fun. So it's this guy, but he's going like, ah! Like, they're trying after guys. He's got a lot of energy. He's, uh, he's a crazy guy. God. Alright. Brandis came out of nowhere. He's, um, there we go. So, first off. And second. And then second. <laughs> um, so. Over, we're recording. Yes, go. So this is Brandis. Uh, at the end of uh, at the end of our adventures in the uh, at the Fire Node, we did all our our end thing. Uh, you guys might have read what uh, Aurora was saying that she wanted to maybe catch up with that crazy human fighter, but uh, watch out for his crazy lizard. Um, <laughs> and uh, so so they left. Let me uh, let me give a little well, seriously. When heaven is about to confer a great office upon a man. It first exercises his mind with suffering, and his sinews and bones with toil. It exposes him to poverty and confounds all his undertakings. Then it is seen if he is ready.
So Brandis and Aurora leave. Hamlet. On their way <laughs> towards Astrogound. Down here. We're up here. About I'm sorry. Yeah, around here. Yeah, we're right, right here actually. On the coast right here, yeah. on the coast along here. We we spoke on the road for a while, we talked, there was some nice conversation between Aurora and Brandis. They learned lots of things about each other and had a good time. They had some nice connections. And uh and one night while they were in camp, the wind started blowing more and more, and uh, a storm picked up. Something that hasn't happened in this region of the area in about a hundred years. A tornado touched down. And they tried to hunker down, they looked for trees, they looked for caves. It's a pretty flat area, they couldn't find anything. The wind's picking up, it's throwing stuff all around like that. And just above the howling of the wind, Aurora hears Brandis say this right here. In the black wa- wastes of Halrua, I once led an army of golems against a white dragon who flapped his wings into a storm the size of a. Ah! <laughs> he got picked up with his wizard and got tossed into the air, in the night air, and Aurora didn't see him again for about a year. <laughs> <laughs> they were along the coast. Kansas. They got tossed. This tornado picked him up and moved him off into the water here. And toss him out there somewhere. Corva, his lizard, can stay awake a lot longer than she, than he can, and kept them afloat for a while, swimming around. He was then picked up by a ship that was doing some mercenary work here, some treasure hunting, some smuggling. They picked him up. They saw his lizard. They saw his sword. And they said, "All right, why don't you come on board?" And uh, they took him aboard. Found that he was uh, he was useful in a pinch, and. Uh, <coughs> And uh, they said, well, we're on our way here, we're smuggling around. He sailed the seas here for, uh, for a couple months. They, uh, some seedy work, but for the most part positive, uh, friendly stuff. Getting uh, smashed at pretty much every coastal town along here. Um, and slowly made their way out to this area called Var the Drown. An interesting little area that uh, when, the, when the spell plague hit, the water shift, shifted, um, submerged about a half a dozen little towns and cities over there. And, uh, let's pause like this. Uh, no, press the pause button. Oh, pause for pause. That's Um, and, uh, they sailed out there, and, uh, and they said, well, <clears throat> everyone comes out here to, uh, hunt, to, to, uh, to treasure hunt these, these sunken cities here because they just got submerged all at once, and, uh, no one ever seems to come back, but we thought it would be a good idea. <laughs> and, uh, they had they had a, 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 a caster at the time. I mean, at this point, people are people are getting strong enough. They had someone uh, cast the uh, the water breathing ritual, and they sunk uh, just with their armor full on and everything, sunk deep out of the water uh, to uh, to start excavating, where they encountered some undead. To great surprise, since the town was fully populated when it was submerged, <laughs> and uh, they began fighting underwater, and none of them were very good at it because. You can't really swing your swing your sword very easily uh, when when you're in, in solid water and in, in flowing water like that. And so it was a group of sailors and Brandis and some mercenaries that were with them um, trying trying to kill each other, trying to kill the the skeletons and zombies that were popping out of the water. All the sucky you know worms coming out stuff like that. They had like eels and crabs crawling all over their faces and stuff like that. And uh, That's not what I was thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mako. That was uh, Conan. 
Alright. <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> Undead all over the place. Men dying left and right. When suddenly a third group came down, more adventurers, <laughs> who looked like they were sailors as well. Big surprise since everyone comes here and no one comes back. <laughs> they start fighting over, as the skeletons are dying out, they start fighting each other because they know that once the undead are gone, there are treasures that they haven't found yet. But there's definitely treasures left over. <laughs> and uh, Brennus defends himself pretty well, but on accident, he's swinging his sword around and misses one of the enemies and cleaves right into one of his allies that was next to him, one of the old sailors. He apologizes profusely and swings back <laughs> his enemy and chops into another one of the, his enemies. The, the enemy pirates that had come in saw that he was killing his own men and thought, oh, he's a mutineer, perfect, he's, he's joining with us. And everything calmed down, the last of the sailors that he was originally with were killed off. And the second group of sailors said, why don't you join up with us? You seem like you're good in a pinch. <laughs> they dropped their, their, the stones they had in their pockets and floated back to the surface. And he joined up with these group of sailors, which piloted a ship of most peculiar nature. They introduced themselves as one of the ships of the five companies. Captains of magical airships. Thank you, music. <laughs> <laughs> he then spent the next couple of months Ooh. sailing with them. Now, instead of getting drunk on only port towns, they could go all over the place. They uh, mostly smuggled and were hired by mercenary groups, and he grew uh, grew very close to these guys. And for the next months, the land of the Forgotten Realms was new a new terror as Brandis joined an airship <laughs> full of pirates. That preyed on the evil and weak, and that's such an awesome combination. Attacked, <laughs> attacked merchant caravans that were probably doing bad things, but Brandis never really paid attention to their motivation. <laughs> he knew that they were that they had found a family and a place to uh, to call his own, and fell in and with with very close with these guys. They sailed all over, and at one point, during a storm, in fact. They were sailing over a deserty area in this region here, um, not too far from East Rift. <laughs> and one of the, and, and um, Brandis was speaking and suddenly he was specifically talking about the foods that Corva uh, likes to eat, and the men, and half the men on, on board, suddenly draw their swords and said, HE HAS SPOKEN THE CODE WORD! NOW, MEN! And he had accidentally initiated a mutiny. <laughs> what Brandis didn't know is that the men had talked amongst themselves and decided that they were going to kill the captain and take the ship for themselves. And that they had decided on a code word called, and they said, rotten meat. It wasn't a good code word being on a ship like that. But they had chosen this, and when Brandis said it in mild conversation, Every one of them just assumed that someone else had brought him into the mutiny group. <laughs> and fighting ensued. And during all this fighting, Brennis took out his sword but didn't know who to attack because no one was attacking him yet. Because <laughs> the original group thought he was still with them and the mutineers thought he was still with them. And during the chaos... Thank you, music. One of the... Shipping term... The wooden... Boom? The boom! <laughs> In the storm, the ship turned and the boom swung across. 
since everyone was paying attention to the fighting and fighting each other, no one noticed that Brendis got hit, kicked overboard by the boom and fell tumbling into the waist. Now, as a precaution, they give all of the ships, the sailors of these airships, uh, uh, belts of, of feather fall. Unfortunately, they don't account for the weight of a giant lizard as well. And he fell just below uh, lethal speed into the sand. And the airship disappeared off into the storm. Crunch. Um, he, <clears throat> he rose up, oh. rode just a few miles to the road over here, and found out that he was not far from East Rift, which is that I was speaking to Aurora for a while. She's from these parts or something like that. Or she talks about it all the time. <laughs> and he thought, maybe I'll go over there. What he didn't know was that East Rift has been in some contention for a while. For like a couple hundred years. Um, with drow that have been inhabited the former dwarven capital there. And they've become so xenophobic. Complicated word. Um, that they don't allow outsiders just initially. So when he got there and said, "Oh, my friend Aurora Warload should be should you know live around here," his name dropping and and gave the gave a man at the front gate a, a couple gold and said, "Go and find her. She'll vouch for me, and, and I'll be able to, to go in because it seemed like a great idea." You know? And so the guy ran off to go find this Aurora Warload that he that he mentioned in a massive city. Um, <laughs> and while he was waiting, he went to the little the little tavern that's basically outside the air that that humans and other species or uh, races are allowed to to hang out in and overheard some adventurers that were planning on sneaking past the dwarven fortresses that are along the edge here because above the underchasm there are earth moats mm. that house shards of some exploration music is there like a yeah no, I'll try this one here I remember this one earth moats earth moats yeah. are floating pieces of land and when this tore open, bits of the Underdark and the Underdark cities floated up in earth moats. And they decided that they were going to get a wizard that they had hired to get to the edge of these of the of the underchasm here and teleport them onto one of the earth moats. Because that would be where the greatest treasures of the Underdark are, a place that no one could get to, floating above the Underdark like that, above the Underchasm. Awesome. This part of the plan worked without a hitch. It was no problem. <laughs> Yeah, to great surprise! It was like, Brave was like, wow, everything's been going <coughs> bad, for, you know, so far. I'm surprised that actually worked. While they were on there, on on such an adventuring high, because they were finding all these treasures, they were finding things that hadn't been touched for a couple hundred years. They were left on these earth moats. And there weren't even enemy, any enemies, any any creatures crawling on them because they had been so isolated. On such a high, Brandis goes to, over to the edge of the earth moat and unbuttons his pants. <laughs> <laughs> to urinate off into the underchasm onto the obviously countless drow beneath. <laughs> and as he leans back to his allies, he says, Ah! Because he had been drinking as well. Ah! Relieving himself, he did not hear the screech of a hundred giant bats that were coming up from the underchasm. When they then flew up in a giant bat cloud and started attacking all of his, him and his allies around it. He was in the middle of urinating and could not stop because it hurts. <laughs> and ran around as his allies were bit and yanked off the earth moat and, and whatnot. Um, as he ran screaming, going, ah! In his usual battle cry, but he couldn't swing his sword. So, 
eventually most of his allies are, are killed off, and he finishes up. He jumps on Corva, who then, as Corva doesn't always pay attention to his friends, leaps onto one of the bats, which looks like a tasty snack. <laughs> well, the bat screeches and screeches, and kind of teeters off the edge of the earth mode, and as they are falling, Brandis, because there's a giant bat trying to bite at him, attacks the giant bat as much as he can. His feather falling belt has already failed him, and so the the gliding of the barely alive <coughs> giant bat slowly takes them lower and lower as he sees the edge of his known world pass above him as he falls lower and lower into the Underdark. A place that you'd always dreamed of going, but not in this fashion. He then... And he crashed down there alone with just him and a dead bat and Korva. And though on the surface of the of the bottom of the Underchasm, was able to wander amongst in with the under inside the Underdark for a little bit. But uh, knowing that this was a bit out of his league, he hid from just about every creature that he saw. He's not very good at hiding, so for Brendis, hiding is pretty much just staying still in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> and he did this for two more months. <laughs> It's <laughs> such a long time. <laughs> At which point, he was very unhappy with his current state of adventuring. This is the worst adventure ever. <laughs> Corva was able to search out chunks of meat and leftover carrion, which Brandis learned to live off of, and grew very fond of dreaming of the sack of endless potatoes that his pre- previous adventuring group had, and wandered through the tunnels longer now with a goal of getting the hell out of here which took him a little bit deeper until he found some (laughs) glowing runes which resembled a portal which seemed like they would probably take him to a place better than wherever he was. Just as he was stepping onto them he realized what a terrible idea this was. (laughs) As he was thrown through the cosmos not onto the material plane but onto something quite unlike the material plane. I actually don't have a visual aid for that. The immaterial plane? The Astral Sea. Uh. A land not known to most, I mean, known of, but uh, not very conducive to walking around for most mortals. It is the land of some of the gods and some of the worst things. The main thing is, it is not built like our material plane. There's a lot of Alice in Wonderland kind of floating stuff. And he wandered there for another five or six months. Mm. As he was able to get sort of barely corporeal food, um, and just wandered along. He grew more and more belligerent as the time went by, <laughs> because this, in his opinion, was in many ways much worse than the Underdark. I mean, looked like that's that about what he looked like. Your story is so much better if you continually like look at the picture that you've drawn. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes, just picturing him doing all because these things. Brendis has battle cries, but since he's not able to battle many of these enemies, he. He frowns a lot, and he ends up looking like John C. Calhoun. And uh, he's able to survive, which which impresses him, but there's floating masses, there's bright colors, there's whisperings from otherworldly creatures, um, but for the most part left him alone, because in, this, in, in the astral plane, he would be like an ant wandering around. He wasn't even... I mean, he saw amazing things, but there was never any, like creatures as small or as insignificant as him 
that he had to consider uh, as as an enemy. So most of the time he saw great spanning, you know, strange colored mountains and oceans and things like that. He then found he happened across a very unusual site of a very material plane looking um, tower. Just a classic mage tower that you would normally see in Waterdeep or one of the other lands in the in the Forgotten Realms that he'd been familiar with. And ventured in and found that a wizard I'm not not ventured in, knocked at the door. Thank you. <laughs> um, which was which was answered by a wizard who had been stranded in a similar fashion but scoffed at Brandis's walking into a portal like that. Um, he said that he was just finishing up his last his last ritual was here, which was which was very a, a very charmed, very lucky coincidence by Brandis. He has found that through many of his adventures, and all these bad circumstances, it's not that it's been handed to him, but he's been very lucky on a very kismet fate kind of level. Um, and he's and he's had fortune tellers tell him that you know there's something special about him, but he never put any weight in it. And so at this point, he really started thinking more about um, bigger plans that might be in store for him by wandering into a wizard tower in the Astral Sea, which just happened to be there. <laughs> the ritual began, Brennus, all the light, light got brighter and brighter and brighter, and he was uh, emerged on a green, a, a grassy plain. The wizard was not anywhere, it was nowhere to be seen. Emerged on a grassy plain, he didn't know where he was, but he was around here. Surprisingly close to Akinul, the place you remember that he had wanted to go to most recently. Well, when he was with about a year ago. Um, <clears throat> he emerged, and just as he began looking around and getting a uh, feel for his surroundings, he'd been done so much traveling, so all over the land, he was taking an all right, you know, this type of rock here, this, this you know, level of grass here, it's this season, looking at the stars, trying to figure out. He suddenly heard a loud crunch on the back of his helmet and fell unconscious as he had been ambushed <laughs> by orcs. Um, a, an enemy that, that uh, was definitely in the scope of combating, but uh, when they get the jump on you, he was, he was out like a light. When he awoke, uh, the man-eaters, one of the orc tribes that have preyed in this area for a hundred years, and that he was from one of the towns that uh, occasionally sends out scouts, sends out scouts to, ch to check on the orcs because they have not attacked the human. They have not attacked the the humans in full force. They prey on stragglers. And they have not attacked them in full force because there have been many tribes that have fought amongst themselves, and they send out scouts basically to make sure that the fighting is still going on and sending, you know, envoys and you know smallpox blankets and things to make sure they're always fighting each other. <laughs> <laughs> but he was worried because when he had arrived this time, he had found that the several tribes of man eaters had joined together, and they were no longer a group of separate warring groups. Can you say something? Um, I'm glad this track is going so long. Is it on repeat? They repeat. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and uh, he explains to him that uh, if word is not sent soon. The gathered force of all the manning the man eaters have joined together and will march on the town of I didn't remember it. Moldekin. He pronounces it with a heavy accent and Brandon sudden understand what he says. 
Renis knows that he doesn't really give a shit for these <laughs> men and their little town. He's not a bad guy, but he has bigger concerns. The fact that he's been captured by man-eating orcs. And knows that he is in the worst of his many situations. He knows that he needs the strength of Cord, no less than the god of strength himself, to get him out of this jam. But he also knows that Cord does not give his favors to those who beg, but only blesses those that show they are worthy. <clears throat> he starts shaking his cage a lot, <laughs> making a lot of noise, until one of uh, so an orc bursts in from outside and closes the door. Brandis speaks giant, very broken with a heavy elven accent, um, because he learned it from elves, and he. First man confused He says, "You want a meal? Here's dessert." And he lifts up his stomach and pats his. He lifts up his shirt because his armor and weapon have been removed and are outside the. He lifts up his shirt and pats his stomach. The orc. Mainly mad just at the at the insolence of this. And Brandis is chained, by the way. I'm sorry, I didn't get that across earlier. Brandis has his wrists chained because he's been locked in there and everything. So he's he's chained up. He lifts up his shirt, passes something. The orc lets up, gives some curse, calling him a pale skin, um, <laughs> and <clears throat> unlocks Brandis's gates. And once Brandis sees that, he knows that this is the moment he has, and he must hurry as he sees the gate is open and he closes his eyes is now uh, sorry one second yes Brandis um, <clears throat> closes his eyes and thinks of cord in his mind and knows that he's gonna need his help for this but must show he is worthy Closes his eyes and starts screaming goes, ah! and bites down on the chains of his of his manacles. He hears a crunch and opens his eyes and pulls his hands apart as he is bitten through his own chains. <laughs> he spits out some rusty steel as the orc brings a heavy blow down, which Brennis easily dodges the way out of, holds the orc's uh, hands down together, and has three swift punches to his throat and incapacitates the orc. Then he lifts the sword and beheads the orc. He drops the, the rusty blade, <coughs> unlocks the, the cell for the, uh, uses the keys, and unlocks the cell for the, uh, the scout that was with him there. Dons his armor, picks up his sword, he says, wait here till it's quiet outside. And he goes to the door. <laughs> it's gonna be more noisy before it gets more quiet. And literally kicks open the door to see what he expected to be a group of group of orcs that had been, had been, you know, taken over this abandoned castle or whatever, but instead saw hundreds of orcs <laughs> in marching formation that were about to begin marching to the town here. He had picked the worst time <laughs> to kick open the door. <clears throat> Nonetheless, he, as, as... The door, you know, teetered a little bit and slowly fell off its hinges, and all the orcs in slow motion slowly turned around to see what the noise was. 
He heard words in his mind, and though they were in his voice, he knew that they were the words of Kord. The great, a warrior's greatest battle is always his next. <laughs> he began, he held his hands out, he shoot the sword, held his hands out to see if they were shaking, and they were like stone. <laughs> he rolled up his sleeves, he drew his blade, and began a battle cry that the few remaining orcs that day would remember lasted until they were out of earshot. They <laughs> mastered the ability of some modern trumpeteers of breathing in through his nose and out through his mouth to continue screaming for about two hours. He charged forward and with each swipe of his blade dropped three or four orcs here, five or six there, limbs falling on the ground, blood pouring out until he was ankle deep in the gore of dead orcs. And he just hacked forward and forward and in one direction, and as soon as he had gotten to the edge of where some trees were, the wall of the castle, he turned around and started attacking that way. He suffered many wounds, but could not be felled by them, and he cut through every one of them, every one that dared face him, and eventually the few remaining fled, and he let them flee. <laughs> Because he knew that they would tell the story to the last remaining, the, the last remaining tribe mates, and knew that this town would no longer be bothered by any man-eating orcs. <laughs> he then mounted, got found Corva in a nearby stable, who had already eaten three or four orcs of her own, <laughs> and slowly began his march to the nearby town. He stopped in, mentioned something about there being a great mess to the north, and someone should clean it up. <laughs> and continued walking along the coast to Akinul, his original destination, nearly 12 months ago. <laughs> he walked on, and once he was in sight of Akinul, he, he was ecstatic because it was like, all of this, he... He had left planning on coming to Akinol, and he just, he was excited, he had heard legends about it, he had never been there. He had been all over this land, he had never been to Akinol. He arrives, pays some stable boy a couple copper to watch his giant lizard, leaves Corva there, enters the first giant riding lizard, that makes it worse. He goes into the very first bar that he finds, and all he remembers is drinking one swig and throwing the glass against the wall and it shattering. Which I won't do here. <laughs> he awoke in bed with another person <clears throat> who he heard snoring. And it was a it was a husky snore, which worried him. <laughs> he got up, had a splitting headache, bites and scratches all over him. <laughs> And oh turned to examine his catch. He looked at the blanket and found a female knoll. <laughs> he had done so with his left hand and noticed on his finger there was a gold band. 
and began shaking with fear. For he had faced pirates, undead, dark gods, and an army of man-eating orcs. But only now was he afraid. <laughs> For this was Akinul, a civilized city, run by Janassi and dangerous people. And he didn't even know how a gnoll got in here. <laughs> the fact that he was in its room and its bed made things worse. He... <clears throat> Um, he quickly left. <laughs> Asshole. As soon as he left the inn. He would leave. As soon as he left the inn, a young boy came up to him and said, and said, you, you're Master Brandis. Brandis? Yes, Master Brandis? Yes, I have a letter for you. And he took the letter and slapped the kid in the face. <laughs> opened it up and said it was a wrath saying that he needed to get to High Mascar immediately. And he thought, that's really convenient. I need to get out of here immediately. <laughs> Folded up the letter, sprinted the ten feet to the front gate, <laughs> found the sk- stable boy, grabbed his horse, put his hands in that boy's face, got on his lizard, and he did not stop whipping Korva until they were three days' journey away and on their way to High Mascar. And he was comfortable that his dealings in Akinul were far behind him. He can never go back. He still wears the ring. <laughs> <laughs> and though you do not know the details of the story, he will occasionally talk about his latest wife. He's talked about his previous wife. He will sometimes talk about his latest wife and mention to her as that bitch. <laughs> and she was really territorial. <laughs> Awful morning breath and such. He laughs pretty hard at his own jokes, more more so at his own jokes than his latest wife, or his previous wife, and you never really know why, but uh, you suspect there's definitely more to that story than you'll hear about. He rides onward to High Mascar and finds a wrath. We'll go over that later. Yes. <laughs> Alright. Phenomenal. Story. <laughs> yeah! That was fantastic. <laughs> Very good presentation. Is that Conan music? Yes, one of those is Conan. Yeah, a couple of those are Conan. A couple of those are Final Countdown. Other than Johnny Cash, the Final Countdown. Johnny Cash. So cool. I'm so bummed looking at him. I'm pretty sure that when they started singing Final Countdown and it totally threw you off your groove, that was one of the funniest parts. I knew. Thing is, I listened to the entirety of Final Countdown like earlier today to make sure I was like, okay, this is what I'm describing the battle. And I knew there were lyrics, but it really took me by surprise. I was like, oh yeah, (laughs) they're singing in this song. It's the final countdown. That was pretty appropriate, though. Yes, I... Immensely appropriate. Excellent, excellent soundtrack. Oh my gosh. Uh, I did have for when he was... I don't want to go anymore. (laughs) Are you next? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let me... um, Should we stop the game? Should we do our thing now, or like, we have have a trip to make? Even his hand, he calls himself Brandis. Um... What? His paragon path is Kensei, I which is path, uh, by the way. oh, they're nuts. Dude. Awesome, they're cool. Uh, yeah, five companies, totally cool. Um, Kensei, which oh, is a uh, sword master or blade master, um, where you study study a, an ancient form of your of your martial arts, um, specifically with a chosen weapon, which for him is uh, heavy blades, uh, uh, falchions, and and full blades. Um, he honestly just got better at doing what he does. Um, Plus one to attack. That's a big, like, 
a lot of people have pretty crazy features, you know, you grow an extra tooth whenever you shoot someone in the back with, you know, a gun, whatever. Um, his is like, no. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I would love that. His is just, you get better at what you're doing. His power, like, the power that he has is like, it's strength plus two versus AC. Like, it's, you just get better at hitting, kind of stuff like that. And that's, that's why, you know, when he was fighting the orcs, and he had that moment of clarity... You know, he's got he's got a lot of noise going on outside and a lot of noise inside, but for a little moment there, he had kind of an epiphany and thought about his place in the universe. Thought about possibly I put some thought into it. Okay. Cause when we were doing this, Greg said, maybe understand your role in terms of Epic Destiny. Because Paragon Path you can kinda of pick about halfway through Heroic Tier. Epic Destiny, since it's a destiny, you kinda of need to start working a like Thinking about it, you don't have to work at it, but think about it. I could build it overnight. At, at the beginning of Paragon Path, I think like you pick your Paragon Path, and when you start doing Paragon Tier, you gotta know. And his stuff is definitely, you know, when you know heaven, you know these gods, cord, all these guys, his time in the astral sea, you know, gaining attention, kind of stuff. Um, that he is not, you know, owned by a god. He's not doesn't, you know, worship a deity like a monk kind of thing. But does bite through but the occasional rusty chain. But he's he, he bites through chain, and that was the thing. It's like in some ways the battle with the hundreds of orcs was less transcendent than him biting through chains. Like he bit through chains, and it was like that, that opened the door. That opened the door. And then that was, walking through led that, to slaughtering. That, yeah, yeah. Of the orcs. moment where he bit through the chains is where he where he achieves his paragon path. The biting through the chains is what killed the orcs. Yes, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well put. And so, um, and so he's, he, yeah, he's a Kensei. Um, in terms of new stuff, I mean, he's just doing similar to, I mean, doing the same kind of stuff that he did before. But I'm, you know, depending on him trying to mark guys, lock guys down more What's the Paragon path feet, or sorry, the Paragon feet that you took? Paragon feet, that's back to the wall. Yeah, I'm sticking with back to the wall. That, I will have that forever. Um, I, that was uh, so awesome. So, um, I welcome you many, many things. A body of orcs. And I will be training out <laughs> uh, opportunity, uh, heavy blade opportunist for weapon focus because it's awesome. I might trade out weapon focus as soon as martial power 2 comes out for one of the combat styles which enhances some of your at will powers, like my death thrower feat where I throw a javelin at a guy because I'm badass. Like, that's not even about like killing a guy. That's like, I'm gonna slash this guy, and then you throw a, you throw a ranged weapon that doesn't provoke. Throwing weapons in combat and not Lightning provoking I think is one of the coolest ones. You should get yeah. some of that. Exactly. Yeah, that's damage. That was just some stretch paper, but yeah. I, the Black I... Waste of Halrua. Is that right? Yes. Halrua. I once led an army of golems against a white dragon who flapped his wings into a storm the size of... Ah! Yes. <laughs> I thought that was that appropriate way of beginning his journey and starting I've Been Everywhere. So, yes. Um, He's like Gulliver. He's, he is! He's uh, Butters beat on the hallway. What? Aw, Butters. And someone shit on the coats. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> coats? You have coats? No, sorry. He's making shit up. Yes. Literally. It's from a sketch. Literally. Oh. Um, the title right. of my story was Touched by a Demon. <laughs> uh-huh. Nice. Touched by a Demon. That's yeah. classic. For the very I forgot first to tell you. Time. Brandis, um, honestly, if there's a title to Brandis's like story, kind of biography thing, like when someone writes an autobiography and they just title it like their name, yes, Brandis's Paragon Path story would just be Brandis, the man, the myth, the, <laughs> the legend. Just Brandis, period. <laughs> He's kind of like a mythical 
person. Actually, I'm gonna be he's very the much Brandis. like the, the Brandis. The Brandis. Um, Brandis, your Brandis. Yes. Oh, and yeah, you were. I think we talked about the five facts and stuff. Brandis. Uh, can we we got through Damon's five facts during the playtest. Just while we're, while we're waiting for you to come back. Oh um, yeah, we did that during the playtest. Like, um, just because, just because Damon never got to Eric never did his thing for him. And yeah, Brandis just that was my thing. Is Brandis has a crazy backstory of stuff like that happening all the time. I need to figure out, figure out a way to one up it. So I had to throw some crazier stuff. Is Brandis great. now your? Like explain to me really quick. I don't know if he's going to include this or not, but you are Brandis now. Yes, I'm Where? playing Brandis. Um, I was on the fence. I'm pretty sure now, but I really need to turn the key on it because we're getting to know. Eric has officially retired Orum. Eric will not be playing Orum as a player character for the for the rest of our, us playing together. Okay. Gray has permission. We don't know if it will happen, but I I think it would be pretty cool <laughs> that we might encounter Orum as an NPC, similar to Arath is now an NPC and was a player, essentially. Uh, if I turn the key and say Malik is now officially retired, we might encounter him. I trust Greg with in both okay. the case of Orum and with Malik. He's not going to take the artistic license to the point of them getting sex change operations or something like that. Uh, um, you're done with Malik because you're going I, with yeah, Brandis. Yeah, yeah. So Brandis, that was just, that was just, just my question. If this is like, <laughs> look, he I have a dick on my head for right now until we meet up. No, with no. Him the idea Malik. was whoever wanted to take to the Paragon needs to stay with Paragon yeah. because we're going to start doing things that really tie into the future and past. And especially and one of the things you talked about was. Especially getting these characters, like we were tied together by a common objective before. But you're talking about you want the group to feel tighter, um, yes. to feel connections, um, and I think that that's like now would be especially difficult to pull someone out halfway through Paragon Tier because the idea is these guys are really getting closer connections. Okay. And so yeah. Brandis definitely will be with us. Um, Brandis is that crazy glue. for a long. Yeah, he's a crazy yes. glue that sticks there. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so you can understand why while we're adventuring, he just talks about stuff, and he doesn't brag. He's not like, I killed a bunch of orcs. He's like, one time I was in a tornado and got picked up by pirates. <laughs> and Pirates! And one of them had three arms, and two of them were hooks. And, and like that kind of thing. Like, If you're ever cold, I can summon my demons and you can cuddle them. <laughs> they prevent hypothermia. Brandis is exactly what Is that actually in the description? That would be amazing. But they do... Yeah, really he's like, I'm freezing exactly, in frozen waste. Exactly. I summon my fiery demons and kill. Okay, let's get the next story started here. Well, Chain of Fate. Next. Chain, chain, chain. Okay, next up is Kaylin. My life. Uh, no. With the story of Aurora. I started the story really early too, but I just finished yeah. it. Do you want to give a, a, an intro a, to your story? A slight intro, just gonna go, yeah, yeah, I mean, what she's doing intro. before this. Well, I mean, you guys read the story of her leaving, and and you know that she got separated from Brandis via tornado, which really was kind of fate, I guess, because she was starting to get freaked out by him anyway, and <laughs> maybe it was time to take a break. <laughs> But it was alright. No, I mean, she 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 makes her way looking for the thing that she's always been looking for, and you know, though you don't know, um, that that's her uh, her identity and her past. And she she goes back to Arath, uh, the Arathacene Temple in Estegan, hopefully to convince the clergy there to make an appeal to Arathas on her behalf, considering everything that she's done, and that's where. We begin one month after leaving Holland. Tell me, Paladin Aurora, 
What made you think you could ask anything of Arathus? The High Priest in Tardis looks at Aurora dispassionately, and suddenly she feels as if she is a child again, under the reproachful gaze of her father. She feels a flush of embarrassment paint her cheeks, and she struggles to maintain calm, though her anger is growing within her. Who is this human man to tell her what her god has promised her is false? He watches her with heavily lidded, cool eyes, and she suddenly feels very small, even for a dwarf. Arathus promised me. She, she promised me she would give this one thing to me. It is the only boon I ever asked of her. Intardus appears unmoved as he blinks slowly. Did she now? Did the blessed Arathus promise you this information you seek? Or did you simply assume she would allow you to demand some sort of repayment for your services? Aurora's heart skips a beat, and the world seems to loom above her. Her fingers twitch and strain, and she can find no words. She is lost. She cannot remember ever being explicitly promised anything at all. Not directly, anyway. There had been feelings of approval and support, yes, but always in the context of what she had done being in accordance with Arathus's teachings. She looks up at the man in his pristine robes, the symbol of Arathus gleaming on his chest coldly. Aurora stared at him, at the fine carvings on the walls, the symbols and stained glass, and felt nothing. Nothing at all. The quiet warmth and company she had felt in her heart up until this moment had vanished, and for the first time since her father died, Aurora felt truly and utterly alone. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised. The dwarves never truly abandoned the barbarism of their masters, living in the dark as you do, in the caves of the rift. She was on him in a flash of fury and pain, knocking the shock priest over, striking him as tears streamed down her cheeks and blurred her vision. Aurora erupted through clenched teeth as the p temple paladins tore her off the screaming man as he struggled to his feet, his face bruised and bloodied, nose obviously broken. Heathen! Barbarian! He screamed and pointed at her as the paladins dragged her from the room, struggling in a blind rage, her mind broken with anger and sorrow. Arathus's symbol was stripped from her armor with little ceremony, snatched up by the temple priestess, and dissolved into dust before Aurora's eyes. It was over. Her world came crashing down around her as dust shimmered mockingly on the floor. Heathen. She was nothing now. Three months later. Aurora, are you coming? A warforged calls, hoisting his great spear over his shoulder as he eyes the lone dwarf sitting in the corner of the tavern. She is on her eleventh ale since they arrived, a pace he has never seen her take in the weeks he has known her. She seems set on killing herself at this rate. He frowns, inasmuch as a construct can frown, settling down next to her once more as she peers bleary-eyed up at him as he turns to face her. I'll receive your share of the gold, you know. You won't be happy when you sober up. Not that she is ever happy. Not anymore. No godless paladin can find happiness without a spirit within them to give their heart a reason to beat. Aurora looks deeply into the mug, feeling just as empty as it is. Go on, Keeper. I'll be here when you get back. Maybe I'll go next time. If there even is a next time, she mutters into the mug. Keeper pauses, unsure how to proceed in the face of such obvious unhappiness. Aurora was a painfully open book, and Keeper could only sigh in response. If that is what you wish. We'll be back within a few weeks, weather permitting. Aurora made a half-interested grunt, and Keeper stood, the bench creaking heavily as he did so leaving the dwarf to her misery and self-pity. As the massive warforged construct lumbered out of the tavern door, Aurora sighed, reaching into her pack for another bit of coin, 
Hopefully, there would be enough to put her out before too long. Instead, she felt the distinct jagged edge of a metal object, and withdrew it curiously. It was dark, lustrous, and heavy. Aurora's heart swam with memory. It was the shard of the obex that the dragonborn Orum had given her so long ago, before everything fell apart at the seams, before everything changed. She stared at it, running her finger along the dull surface, ale and coin forgotten. Aurora? Aurora frowned, fingers closing quickly around the precious memento as she turned to face the, the voice. Keeper, I said go, but it wasn't Keeper. In fact, the figure standing next to her wasn't even Warforged, but a woman. A human woman. Aurora must have been pretty drunk to mistake the two. She laughed bitterly to herself. Just what she needed, a curious gawker. What do you want? She said venomously, stuffing the obex back into her pack and readying for a swift exit. Are you, Aurora, only daughter of Belhem Warlord? Aurora snorted derisively. As far as I know, as if it's any business of yours, unless you're my mother. Ha! She laughed, slamming another silver onto the bar. Ale, what must I do to keep from seeing the bottom of my damn mug? The older woman looked nervously at Aurora, who was obviously surly and addled with spirits. No. She replied quietly. But I knew her. Aurora's eyes narrowed staring at the silver-haired woman in the green wool cloak as if for the first time. Horse shit. I've been looking for my mother for eleven years and found nothing. How could you possibly know her? She was losing patience rapidly, and even an elderly woman would not be able to avoid the hell Aurora was prepared to rain down upon anyone who disturbed her drinking to open old, painful wounds. She stood slowly, stepping off the bench, and she swayed, the ground seeming to spin beneath her. You'd better see yourself out before I see you out, woman. My mother abandoned me, and there's all, that's all there is to... to... But the thought remained unfinished as she crashed to the floor with a resounding th The next day. When Aurora regains consciousness, she finds herself in a large, comfortable-looking room. Her eyes take a moment to adjust to the brightness, and her throat burns for water. Her... <laughs> She jerks upright, suddenly noticing the familiar woman who had spoken to her before in the bar, sitting in a chair near her. Good morning, Aurora. Or, I suppose, good afternoon would be more appropriate. You! Aurora says, frowning as she feels for her hammer. I was drugged! The woman sighs heavily. You were drunk! Extremely so, I might add. The barkeep demanded we take you with us, or else risk your property being stolen. I think, considering the alternative, you would be grateful. In the sobering color of daylight, Aurora sees the woman much more clearly. She is old, but not frail, well-fed, but still fair of face with braided, silvery-gray hair. Her face is lined with wisdom, but her eyes are clear and bright, and the way she looks at Aurora, as if she knows her, as if she's familiar. It makes her pause, makes her hesitate, instead of leaping to her feet and barging out the door she had planned. The woman takes her silence as a good sign, and hands Aurora a small bronze necklace with a token hanging from it. She takes it gingerly, staring at the engravings on its surface. This, she begins, then stops, then begins again. This is, it's of dwarven make. She peers closer at the symbol emblazoned on the front of the pendant and suddenly cries aloud, nearly dropping it to the floor. Whirlode, this is the Whirlode family crest. She turns to the woman with shock and confusion in her eyes. Where did you get this? Who gave it to you? The woman smiles softly. Her eyes linger on Aurora's face and then on the pendant. It was your mother's, my dear. 
Your father gave it to her long ago, before you were born. Aurora feels her heart will leap out of it, her chest at any moment and fling itself into the fire. The woman shows no hint of deception or trickery. The symbol in her hand is no illusion. It is as if all the air has been sucked from the room. Who are you? Aurora manages to whisper, fingering the emblem distractedly. Why are you telling me this? I am Isilda Nahieta, and long ago I was the handmaiden of the young Lady Aldora Tashali, daughter of the second Baron of Oldarth, and your mother. But that doesn't make any sense. There aren't any dwarven barons in Olgarth. Iselda looks plaintively at the dwarf, pity plain in her features. No, no there aren't. Aurora still does not understand. She pauses, holding the emblem tightly in her hand. There are no dwarf barons in Olgarth. It is a human-ruled land. For what this woman was saying to be true, her mother would have had to bend. Her eyes widen with sudden realization. This is a realization that, her mi- that has her mind reeling, and she suddenly feels lightheaded. But that's not possible. My mother couldn't have been human. I'm a dwarf, she says plainly, holding up her hands as if the evidence is obvious. But her hands are more slender and fine bone than most dwarves she has known. Her fingers are longer, and her bright blue eyes are so unlike any of her kind that she realizes she has never seen another blue-eyed dwarf in her life. He had always said she had her mother's eyes. It was about the only thing he ever did say about what she looked like, in fact. But Aurora is a dwarf all the same. She is no half-breed mull. Any dwarf worth a pint could spot those human-sized half-dwarves a mile away. Yes, you are dwarven, this is true. However, that does not make your mother any less human. These things have been known to happen now and again, which means there is a part of you that is human too. Aurora is in shock. Never in her years of imagining and fantasizing had her mother ever been human. Never had she imagined a mother from a completely different race, a different culture, and the daughter of a baron, no less. Her hands shake as she stares down at the warlord symbol. Her mother was human. No wonder her father had never spoken of her. Aurora was some sort of shameful accident, a forbidden and unworthy daughter for some high-bred noblewoman. Iselda has noticed the pained grimace on Aurora's face and touches her hand comfortingly. I'm sorry you had to find out this way. Our Dora loved you very much, and I know this isn't what she wanted for any of you. Aurora glares at the elderly woman, jerking her hand out of her grasp. Forgive me if I am unconvinced, Iselda, but I was under the impression that humans were not in the habit of abandoning their children when they love them so very much. Now it is Iselda whose eyes are glimmering with tears. She lets out a long, shuddering sigh. Perhaps I should tell you the whole story, child. No doubt you deserve to hear the truth that has been so long denied to you. And what follows is a tale that Aurora feels resonate into her very soul, wrenching her in a hundred different directions as the woman tells her story. Ardora Kishali was born the daughter of a nobleman from Olgarth. Specifically, her father was one of only six baronies that reported directly to the king himself, a position of great honor and distinction. But Ardora had been desperately unhappy, and had run away to the neighboring country of Durapar, hidden away as a sister of the Arathacene temple there, where she had met and fallen in love with Aurora's father, Belham, eventually conceiving a child by him. They had planned to run away together, but it was not to be. Aurora was dis- Ar- Ardora was discovered, and taken away in secret to avoid a scandal. It was several weeks later that the Baron discovered his only daughter's pregnancy. She was kept hidden away until she gave birth, but, 
When the child was discovered to have taken on her father's traits, being a dwarf specifically, the Baron flew into a rage and ordered the child destroyed as the only evidence of his daughter's shameful indiscretion. Terrified and heartbroken, Ardora spirited the infant away in the night and sent her away with Iselda Nehetia, her most trusted friend and handmaiden, who was to take the child far away where the Baron could not touch her, to her father in East Rift. When the Baron discovered what his daughter had done, he was so incensed by her disobedience and dishonor that he had exiled her to the Rhone Desert, a death sentence in all but name. Iselda warned Belhem never to reveal who Aurora's mother was, lest she be targeted by the Baron for revenge or Aurora's mother be further punished, unaware that the Baron's daughter had already been exiled. And so, he never told Aurora the identity of her mother, though it broke his heart to deny her each time his daughter asked. He had done it to protect her and the woman who he had loved, never realizing she had been sent into the desert to her death. One month later. Her heart is beating in her ears. The hammer is light in her hands, lighter than it has ever been. And when she wields it, an arc of light seems to follow it as an echo. Her face is flushed, and she takes a slow, deep breath, advancing on the last of the orc's defense forces. Stand down, or I will put you down, she shouts, her voice ringing across the field, now littered with crumpled, unconscious, and dead orcs. Two of the three remaining warriors make to advance, sprinting towards her with murderous speed and their weapons held high. Aurora is walking towards them, calmer than she has ever felt before. The wind is soft and the sun is bright. Everything is slowing down and all around her is warm light. Her hammer glows as it filled to the brim with radiance as she grips the smooth handle softly in one hand, pointing it towards the advancing orcs. There is a sound. Something like the thundering of the earth and the shrill shriek of steel unsheathed. Shimmering bands of light burst from her in a ring, causing the tall grass to bend and ripple like water as the green field within it turns opalescent and white. The orcs do not hesitate to enter, and Aurora strikes out with a sharp, pick-like end of the craghammer, digging deep into the shoulder of the first orc. Light bursts from around the wound, searing it with radiant energy. Aurora does not understand why her powers have returned to her, but she has no time to question it as the second orc brings his axe down towards her head, connecting with the heavy red-gold shield. Her, she rips the hammer down the chest of the first orc, only to send it careening into the jaw of the second. Crunch, sound of shattering bone, howls of pain. The orc falls back into the white grass, now wet and dark with blood. Her eyes fix on the orc standing within her circle still, staggering back and clutching his shoulder. He growls, bearing sharp, pointed fangs and smearing the blood across his scant armor with a murderous look as the wound glows brightly, binding him to her. The orc throws himself at her with bare fists, and she digs in her heels as he attempts to shove her out of the circle, bringing her hammer up around his left side with the flat end, breaking several ribs and causing him to double over in pain, collapsing to the ground in a heap. The orc who remained on the far side of the field drops his weapon. The light fades slowly from her, ebbing away like the tide. Iselda's good friend, Brother Velgresh, had asked her to come here to talk to these orcs, not to fight them. She lowered her hammer slowly, looking back at the orc warchief who had set the warriors upon her. Are you satisfied, Hasil? How many more of your warriors must die before you listen to reason? The warchief grunted derisively. 
but made no move to attack or send further troops. Parg, the half-orc who had accompanied them and helped them with the translation, for the war chief had no interest in speaking the common tongue. They intended to forcibly adopt a human woman who was heavy with the child of one of their clan, Parg himself. They had argued that this was the way of their people, and that the family would be protected from the woman's brother, who had loudly voiced his intent to tear the child from her womb if he were ever to get a hold of her. Parg, however, had no intention of staying with his clan, and wished nothing more than to live in peace, far away with Fena, his beloved. This is what Velgresh had told Aurora, and the story rang so familiar in her heart that she had agreed to help without question. The woman's brother had not needed as much convincing as the orcs, something Aurora found disappointing, but eventually he had relented and looked at her only with deep shame as she left him in his cottage. Fena and Parg were freed from the oppression of those who had held such power over their lives and were now free to find their own happiness. Goodness can come over time, quietly and secretly unfurling in spring's first blush, or in the rush of shuddering scattered shards of light that pierced the heart in a glorious moment of epiphany. For Aurora, it was the latter, rather than the former. It was the look in the eyes of the half-orc as he embraced the woman who ran to him with arms outstretched. Everything seemed to shimmer in Aurora's vision as she watched them fuss over each other, and the orc band began to move away, back into the forest. This was right. Fena's brother had been shown the path of his bigotry and hateful beliefs would lead, the orcs had been suitably punished, and no more bloodshed would be necessary. Honor and good were supreme in this moment, and Aurora felt dizzy from the weight and power of it. Velgresh placed a steady hand on her shoulder, peering down at her. Are you all right, sister? Sister? Why was he calling her that? She swayed a little, but regained her balance swiftly, still unsure as to what had just happened. I... I don't know. I don't understand what happened. I haven't been able to summon a circle for months ever since... She trailed off quickly, the pain of the loss still sharp and prickling. And then that feeling. I have never felt such comprehension and understanding, as if a great book were open to me and I could see all those things in my own heart that I couldn't see before. Velgresh paused, a small smile creeping into his features. And what did you see? Aurora shook her head, smiling softly. You'll laugh. Velgresh gave her a look that could only be interpreted as a solemn promise that he would not. She sighed, looking down at the hammer still faintly glowing in her hand, the symbol of Arathus long since stripped from it, and yet something seemed to ignite it still when she made to wield it. Benevolence, kindness, goodness, I suppose, justice and honor, a mandate to protect all those things because they are the greatest achievements of this world, not cities of stone or inventions or government. I am at a loss. It is not Arathis who is guiding me anymore. Velgresh nodded slowly, the smile on his face calm and serene as he placed the scaled hand on her shoulder kindly. Come, Aurora. Let us return to the temple. We have much to discuss. One month later. Humanity is a puzzle. Aurora thinks this as she stares out the window across Estagun's bustling capital. On the one hand, they are short-lived, immature, and impulsive. They burn hotly and brightly like spell flame, and often act rashly to achieve their goals. 
On the other hand, they are creative and adaptable, strong-willed and sure-spirited. They are quick learners and admirable in their achievements. She wonders what human traits, if any, she inherited from her mother. Aurora, it is nearly time to- Oh! You cut your hair! Iselda stands at the doorway with a look of dumb surprise on her face as Aurora turns toward her, her hair loose and falling barely past her shoulders. You look like your mother! Aurora stands up, snapping the last bit of plate mail into place and smiles. Human hairstyles are more practical, it turns out. Less tangles, too. Iselda laughs and they make their way to the Grand Hall of the Temple of Bahamut, where Velgresh stands in his grand robes, waiting patiently. She walks with nobility, a sort of sure-footedness that brings her a sense of balance and poise. Then she is there, kneeling before a small stone basin that seems to be brimming over with silver light, spilling onto the floor and vanishing as if evaporating into the air. Velgresh raises his hand slowly, holding something in his other hand that she cannot see from her angle kneeling on the floor. The paladin of Bahamut is the bastion in the storm the refuge of the weak, and the honorable hand of justice against evil and wicked deeds. Many choose to follow Bahamut out of a desire to serve his ideals which live in their own heart, and others, a rare few, follow because Bahamut chooses them, and their hearts is renewed by divinity. Aurora stands slowly, heart brimming with warmth as she feels the energy flowing from the basin into her. It is flowing around her softly, silver liquid light that warms her skin and makes her dizzy with wonder. Aurora Warlode, daughter of Adora Keshali and Belham Warlode, you stand before us here today in recognition of your heart and your will to serve as Bahamut's vessel of justice on the mortal plane. Yours is a life bound in honor and duty, justice and protection. You will cloak yourself in compassion and mercy, but bring swift and unyielding justice and smite those who would prey upon the weak. This is your future as it is written unto your very soul, should you become a paladin of Bahamut. Is this what you desire? I do. Aurora has never felt so sure of anything in her life. And do you swear your oath of allegiance to this life and Bahamut until such time as you are released from it, or upon the moment your soul is called away from your body? I do. Velgresh puts forward his other hand, and in it is a large, slender, silver hammer, fashioned with a flat, sharp pick on one end, that appears to have a hilt covered in shining silver dragon scales. It glows with inner light that makes Aurora's eyes sparkle with curiosity and admiration. When her fingers close around the hilt, she feels the sudden jolt of energy as an ethereal, translucent chain spins into existence, linking the hilt of the hammer to her gauntlet. A spiritual bond surges between them, and she realizes that this is no mere magical hammer. It is attached to the very fiber of her soul. It links her with Bahamut and the power of the connection that flows through it. It is a marvel. She bows low as Velgresh releases the hammer, the hammer to her, handing her a small silver pendant with the symbol of Bahamut on it. Let us go into this world and do good, Aurora. Velgresh says quietly to her. I see great things in you. I don't understand them all, but I know enough to tell Bahamut does not choose his disciples lightly. Aurora smiles softly, the hammer glowing faintly in her hand. We shall see, Velgresh but I think I'd like to visit my other homeland first. Two months later. There's still time to turn back, you know. I don't think the Baron realizes we're here yet. Iselda is nervous and pulls the hood further over her head. Nonsense, Aurora pats her shoulder as they make their way towards the inn. We have just arrived in Olgarth. I haven't seen the capital yet. Iselda frowns. 
The Baron will not be pleased to have the past returning to him. The ugliness of shame and fear can drive men to do terrible things out of desperation. She has warned Aurora, but she is like her mother. Stubborn, unyielding, and strangely innocent in the face of danger. Aurora spends only a few days in the capital before a letter arrives by Elven Courier. At first she wonders if Arath has finally sent another letter. Though it bears no mark of magic, and the courier seems very sure that the letter comes from the dwarven city of Earthheart. She presses the money into his hand hurriedly as she tears the wax seal off, scanning it with eager interest. Her aunt is dying. Aurora sighs slowly, letting the letter flutter to the table. She sits quietly for a moment. Her only remaining living relative, and the only female member of her family in her life, had been her aunt her godmother. She had outlived Aurora's father by many years of age, it seemed, but finally age had caught up to her. She would, have, she would have to go and attend the morning rituals. It would be the first time she has been in Dwarven lands since she left at the age of fourteen. How strange that she managed to avoid it for so long. Iselda and Velgresh stay behind, working together with the existing clergy of Bahamut while Aurora travels back to Eastrift to say goodbye. What she finds is a body. Aurora has missed her by only a few hours. The funeral is grand and full of ale, as is the way of dwarves, and the large stone fortresses of the rift bring a sense of childhood nostalgia, but little comfort. Her father is dead, and now her aunt. It is a cold moment, even surrounded by a throng of boisterous singing dwarves. They sing to the dead on the pyre, and Aurora's eyes are reflected with flame and smoke and she thinks about the volcano in the Crater Ridge Mines and a different sort of goodbye. Embers, ashes, dust. Aurora is now the only surviving member of the Warlord clan. She's glad that Keeper had agreed to come with her. Though he is stoic and usually very reserved, she can depend on him. He is a good friend, and she doesn't feel so alone when he stands next to her at the funeral pyre. Her face is hot and tears dry on her cheeks. She looks up at him as the service comes to an end, and he nods knowingly. Shall we go back to Olgarth now? Aurora nods slowly, her smile distant and bittersweet. Yes, I think it's time to move on. Month 11. Two months later? Or one month later. One month later. We have to split up, Keeper. There's no use trying to hide if we stick together. They are in a darkened alleyway, but the sound of the guardsmen indicate that they are not far behind. This was not the homecoming Aurora had been hoping for. Iselda and Velgresh barely avoiding a kidnapping attempt, being uh, ambushed at the door to visiting their room at the inn, then chased through the spice markets now covered with yellow dust from one of the merchant's barrels she had knocked over in her haste to escape. Keeper looked down at her calmly, then back at the distant sounds of men shouting. You are right. The only thing more obvious than a dwarf is a dwarf of the Warforged construct following her about. There was a hint of a smile in his voice that Aurora had become somewhat attuned to, but her heart was pounding too hard to make sense of the joke. She pulled the hood of her cloak over her head, watching the street warily for an opening in the crowd to slip into. Aurora looks up at the keeper one more time with a sad smile and squeezes his hand. It is a gesture he has come to understand as an expression of friendship and affection. He nods slowly. Take care, Keeper. We'll meet up again later. And she is gone, vanished among the bustling crowd. 
Aurora is not surprised to discover that this is the Baron's work. Iselda had warned her early on that he would feel threatened if he were to discover his long-lost grandchild had returned to Olgarth in search of her heritage. But still, kidnapping? Assault? These were the acts of a desperate man, and the more Aurora learned, the deeper the pit in her stomach seemed to tunnel, colder and more unnerved than ever. Let go of me, you stumpy stone humper! I'm not telling you anything! The gnome <laughs> snarled and kicked at her, but Aurora held the struggling servant tightly, her voice barely growling above a whisper. You'd do best to reconsider that position, friend. I know you work at the Kashali estate, and I very much doubt your baron is paying you enough to deal with the likes of me. She lessens the pressure on his arm just slightly, and he seems to relax. Just tell me what I want to know, and I'll pretend we never spoke. No one will know. There's a moment of hesitation, but the gnome is already rattled beyond the meager salary he has afforded. The dwarf looks well-armed and has quite a grip anyway. Baron Kishali has become the most powerful of all the baronies. I do not know how, but I know why. Aurora's eyes narrow, urging him to continue. The, the, the king is ailing, quite suddenly, and the prince is not prepared for the task of ruling. He maintains the illness will pass, but the baron knows it will not. He intends to usurp the prince's birthright and become steward of the throne until such time as the remaining baronies rule to pass the kingship to his stead, and with it... The power to declare war. Her features are grim and set in anger. She releases the gnome, who rubs his elbow with indignation. How does the baron know with such certainty that the king's ailment will not pass? I don't know! The gnome scowls. Do you think the baron tells his servants anything? I only know what I pick up from conversations I overhear. I'm practically invisible, but that doesn't mean I know everything. Now... He holds out his hand. Are we quite finished? Aurora sighs, dropping a gold coin into his open palm. Stay out of trouble, gnome. I may need to talk to you again. The gnome scoffs, making his way towards the exit hurriedly. Don't count on it! <laughs> Weeks go by as Aurora tries desperately to find a nobleman or baron with an ear who will hear her warning. Most will not even see her, as she is largely unknown in these lands and has no status to speak of. She is only barely able to avoid Baron Kashali's men and has not seen Keeper since they parted in the marketplace. Those who she does manage to gain an audience with, usually through bribes or other diplomatic channels, dismiss her as paranoid and a conspiracy theorist, for she has no evidence to support her claims other than her own conviction and the anonymous source in his estate. Aurora is frustrated, and at the end of the month, the king's health finally fails. The country is in an uproar as Baron Salus Kashali submits evidence that it was the prince himself along with several accomplices, who poisoned the king's health in order to take the throne away. Baron Kashali is the natural choice for Steward, as the king had no other heirs, and Kashali was the one who had so cleverly discovered the prince's evil plot. The prince is banished. Obviously, the baron does not consider him enough of a threat to kill him outright, and the prince had been well-loved and admired. Killing him would have been an unpopular decision for the new steward seeking kingship. They call him Merciful. Aurora shudders and cringes with rage as she holds the proclamation scroll in her trembling hands. She is implicated in the murder. Her name is scrawled neatly between that beneath that of the Prince, Iselda, and Vilgresh. Aurora Warload, dwarf, wanted for conspiracy to commit regicide, treason, and subversion. She is livid. The parchment is crushed in her hands and she stomps it into the dirt. Now he is steward, positioning himself to be king, 
and there is nothing she can do about it. Aurora leaves Olgarth that night under the cover of a clouded, moonless sky and a dark wool cloak. She almost doesn't notice the crow as she rides out past the gates and down the sleek, dark road. Its wings are silent, and she is startled when it lands in front of her. A delicate, glowing white sheet of parchment is in its beak. She can't help but crack a faint smile. This is a wrath's doing. Of that, there is no doubt. She had wondered what became of him, as his letters seemed to have stopped suddenly a few months back. She unrolls the scroll carefully, and the crow vanishes back into the sky without so much as a squawk. As she reads, her eyes become serious again. She looks back at the dimly lit city of Oviltar, Ulgar's capital, comfortable in its ignorance, the home she is still denied a bit longer. It will wait for her, though. She knows this. She owes a wrath, and she cannot deny that there is some small wish of her to return to a more innocent time of ignorance herself. Before she knew her mother's story, before her grandfather implicated her in the murder of a king and set an entire country upon her head, when Arathus made sense, and life was simple. But she knows this is a fantasy. She had been empty and unhappy then, immature and unfulfilled. She shakes her head slowly, spurring her horse onward. She is so much more than what she had been so long ago. The Baron had been a good teacher since before she was born. He had taught her that evil would always need someone to fight against it, that honor and justice were the only weapons against the tyranny of fear, and that it was up to the strong of heart to wield power for the good of all, to protect the innocent and the weak, to serve as the guardian of the fragile hope of those oppressed by men with wicked designs such as he. She is their justice. She will not allow any more people to suffer as she had. She is their retribution, and she is their deliverance. She is Aurora Warlord Kashali, and this is not the last Ulgarth or the Baron will see of her. This she swears. I liked it. <laughs> cool. That was very Bahamut, huh? Mm-hmm. I know, this is that's huge. I dude. love Bahamut. Like I love that like we go from like big change with Ren, Brennus does more <laughs> of what he does, <laughs> and then Warload. All over the place. Extra names, extra power, Banished extra hammers, heretic and heathen. Jeez. The heathen part was really cool. What's that? The heathen part was really cool. Oh, yeah. But Bahamut, that's that's some shit. Yeah, it did take about three minutes for her to dish her at this in that story. It was 18 pages in the first two paragraphs. It's like, I'm out. Peace. <laughs> it was very abrupt. Um, is I'm not just. Uh, Bahamut is more the more the. Fancy, the goodest, sparkly, the good. good ones. Huh? Not, not so unaligned no, anymore. No, he, you're he not aligned. Good. Not unaligned anymore. Like, is your alignment as a character? It changed. We can't do the unaligned. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> unaligned. <laughs> yeah. When everyone was like, "Oh, I'm gonna have champion for good," and everyone thought, and Ken and I would go like this, <laughs> and it would make a you, because we're unaligned. <laughs> Both Malik and Brandis. Not so now, like, you're like, I'm not aligned. You're like... Unaligned. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, bam! Bam! Unaligned. Unaligned. See how quickly you moved on? Brandis, I'm a little unsure. This guy is like, like, summoning demons. He killed his buddy. Like, 
I mean, Mal kind of dark past, but you might man. turn that L into an E for evil pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> Lawful evil. Shit. Yeah, it's uh. Well, technically, I mean, like, like on paper, what is damage? <laughs> How much time do you have? Okay, okay, okay. no, no, we'll get on that in a second. It's just a curve, but wow, jeez. So, describe your paragraph now. Then. Yeah, yeah, what's yeah, your, yeah. what is like, this? And where's the old, old, Chain the of get the map out. Oh, Olgarth? Actually, it's not on the map, it's on the, it's sideways. It's off like, the, um, it's a, oh, yeah, where is it in relation? Is it to the east? It's right next to Durapar. Oh, it is into the east. Because I know you, you said Durapar. off that way? Because this no, is uh, Estigander oh, yeah. here. Durapar. Durapar right here, so it's that way? It's that way, yeah. What? Yeah, it's, it's largely surrounded. Grid. It's largely surrounded by nothing. Uh, largely, and not huh. a lot of nothing. <laughs> I get you. Too much. Well, the, this is the Roran Desert me. right here. This is where your your mom got sent. Yep. Wow. So sad. It's a lot of. It's a lot of sand. It's a lot of nothing. It's a lot of dead. This can be shed. But um, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> dead. She's been growingly. She. I mean, you. Uh, I don't know if you know. She's been talking to Arathis a lot less. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't notice that. She, I didn't notice that. And, and like, I, she's rolling with the other Paula and the Vister, and I thought it was just going to be intolerable, but I'm like, well, actually, Vister was the one who ended up talking more about Arathis throughout the in thing. In your last Dream on Three Post thing, she wasn't getting along with the whole, like, Arathis thing, and I was yeah, like, I was like, wow. And it was like, I didn't want to ask about it because it seemed like a little tension. Like, oh, like, like Brennison and, and her were talking for, like, traveling for a while, and it never really came up. Every time <laughs> she was like, yeah, or at this, Brennison was like, uh, uh, pass the potatoes. <laughs> I like, I like, whoa, did you see that? I, oh, look at that. There's a bird there. Yeah, in the, in the purple desert sands, I was, um, what? A really monster. What? Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's kind of like, <laughs> man, Bahamas over there. Oh, uh, Bahamas, let me see this. Yeah. She she became a the paladin of Arathis for all the wrong reasons. She she did it to get close to the only thing she knew about her mother. She's young. She did it because she was young, and she did it because she was hoping maybe she could get a favor. Wait wait, you're saying that's where where she went? Arathis she got denied. Oh yeah yeah, I'll bet she got denied that favor in a pretty shitty fashion. I know, and then she broke. And really, the the choice of Arathis leaving was was partially hers, but partially asshole. Okay. Well, if that you, guy was a little racist. If you assault, <laughs> yeah. if you assault a cleric in, in the Arathisine temple, you Brandis, lose your paladinship. Yeah, they melted it before her a, very eyes. And maybe a part of her knew that. Yeah, and that was like. Yeah. Brandis would say that you need to finish the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah the I was gonna say. <laughs> no, I'm surprised no, no, that no, someone didn't die. Either yes. them or her. You I are know, now yeah. anti-Arathis. You, yeah. much like anti-Theras dude. For a, for a large part of this story, she actually becomes a mercenary. Yeah. Um, with Keeper, where where she meets Keeper. Twelve pints deep. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Now, two tears. I gotta be honest. Bahama, all the lawful like good the dudes. All the lawful good dudes, honestly, usually strike me as um, more of the prissy, like oh, good paladin, and they and they just kind of wimpy. I mean. Uh, uh, Aurora is a pretty badass Like you don't usually hear about Bahamut paladins that were Fallen paladins like that's pretty yeah. hardcore That's well, she's not bad I gotta, Protect the weak Liberate the oppressed and defend Just order I, uh, I I can't lie when you Started talking about the keeper shit because we actually had Done some of that in the uh, in the playtesting sure, yeah I, I couldn't help but think yeah, for a little keeper, while on like man. what the mechanics of two defenders rolling together would be, and I'm like, ooh, that'd be kind of good. Like, you got marks flying all over the place. Like <laughs> one guy would mark the minions, and she's got like the powerful mark. She'd like throw it on the big guy. That'd be just, just, just amazing. Awesome. Yeah. 
So, yeah, she ke- we played with Keeper a little bit. So, yeah, we did. In a play test, it was her warden. She rolled out. Yeah, Keeper's out there. Who knows what happened to Keeper? He's a warforged. Maybe if you can invite him to a wedding, just put plus one just in case. You know, yeah, Keeper was awesome doing the playtest with like the, uh, the danger room. I have to point out really quick because I forgot to mention this, but when Dan was telling his story, it was awesome when he said that the mercenaries preyed on the weak and the evil. <laughs> so if you're like if you're like middle class and a nice guy, you don't have to worry about it. No, no. Like, like hey, that guy will give dudes. it up really easy, and that guy will feel really good about taking it from. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Booyah. Exactly. Line them up. If you're, if you're homeless and an asshole, hide. You better watch your back. Here. Homeless or an asshole? Homeless and an asshole. Or both. You're dead. A homeless asshole. Yeah. What was the. If you're going to be homeless, learn some fucking manners. <laughs> what was the trumpet music from, like, when she started doing her hammer glowy thing? Oh, that I don't know. That, it was like some sort is, of synthesized is, trumpet thing. Like, the music was excellent. Yeah, there was the whole thing. There was a couple there that I was like, I was looking over, I was like. I was the music master. I can't pick it all. That's all. Greg had a little part there, I noticed. I like, did. I needed him to read the male part. In the very beginning. I got to read all the. I got to read all the. In the very beginning, he's like, I am Keeper. I was like, whoa! Why are you talking during Kaylin's part? That's not. That's not cool. That's supposed to do that. Yeah, we yeah. did a full. We had to do a full rehearsal. We did a full nice. rehearsal before we did this, and it was yeah. Cool. Mine was mine was uh, slightly less polished. I like you may have noticed. Lot, no, little, you know, yours was perfect. It's quick and dirty. That's, quick and that's dirty. how Brandis is. Yeah. Mine like, was so dark compared to everyone. <laughs> no, that was good. Oh, like Mine's got her the variety. The variety that surprised me just in the first week. We have we're halfway through. We still have three more. Like I'm really curious. Like I'm not putting the pressure on you. Yeah. And you. That actually didn't take as long oh, as you said. Duh. That oh. was only it was, I'm glad. It was 35 <laughs> See, I, minutes. I knew he was yeah. shitting me. Yeah. Anyway, and I'm not putting pressure on you guys, but I'm yeah, really curious. Like, I, I feel, I've, I've been feeling less pressure as it's been, we've, been going We've got, on. like, all anything. over the board so on better. better. So that's so like, I'm curious. I started snorting residium. I just hoarded it. Mountains, I swam in it like whatever, like Scrooge McQuack and DuckTales. No, Rath, he just hangs out in the homelet. He's like, you know how much money I made? I'm staying in the nicest room in the inn Freak all year. <laughs> Did you hear about Lincoln's like, original, just like toying around idea of him leaving the arcane waves and becoming a farmer? I was just going to hang out in Homeland <laughs> and be a farmer. You're like, I'm going to try the non but at the end of the year, you go, I gave it an honest try. Yeah. Kind of boring. <laughs> I would not think less of that. I would, I would be like, that is Man, awesome. Like, he's the agricultural speculator we always <laughs> claim <laughs> to be. All right, so uh, do you guys have to go now? Yeah, so we're going to head out. 20 do minutes we... tops. Okay. 20 minutes tops. All right, I'm going to stop. So, uh, yes, not all the events in a year, but um, kind of some important moments, at least to him anyway. So, here's where we begin. It was a bright, clear day in the mountains. Fat white clouds scudded across the sky, and a light breeze swept ripples across the sea of green trees surrounding the granite outcropping that overlooked the valley below. A man in his late twenties sat, wrapped in a cloak, on a small boulder. The sun beat down on his weathered face and shaggy brown hair as he idly scratched at the stubble on his chin and muttered to himself, What now, Hugh? He left, he left some months ago from the town of Homlet, where he had played a part in a series of strange events that resulted in the world being very nearly, and very narrowly saved from, being destroyed. There was, in fact, now a statue of him in the town square honoring him as one of those who had made the ultimate sacrifice by giving up their lives, preventing the untold horror from being released into the world. He was, needless to say, drinking a little more heavily now. Uh, 
Towards the end of all that madness and horror, Hugh had received a shock when he had seen uh, what he believed was his mother being sacrificed by insane cultists on an ebony blood-stained altar. People had knowledge of such things that reassured him that it had been merely an illusion. Uh, still, it had been seven years or more since Hugh had been home and had suddenly become anxious to see for himself what had become of his mother and his half-brothers and sisters. Uh, and imagine they probably wondered the same thing about himself. Um, so he made the long trip back up into the mountains of northern Faerun uh, to the village where he'd been born. Um, he now sat on a rock and wondered what to do with himself. Uh, his fears about his family's well-being had been unfounded. Uh, they were alive and well. His mother and stepfather seemed happy enough. Uh, he had asked his mother covertly after he had uh, made his way secretly into town, growing out his beard and his hair uh, so that he wouldn't be recognized and word would get about. He was actually still technically in exile from town uh, upon pain of death from the orc encampment that was in the next valley over. Um, but his mother had only mentioned a few nightmares and uh, seemed sane and not cut up into tiny pieces. So, but she was well enough. Um, his stepfather was a little cold to see him. I mean, there was happy enough, uh, but things were okay. He had never really gotten along well with his stepfather. And uh, his half-brothers and sisters had married and had made up lives of their own. And three of them had kids, and one of them was actually uh, working on becoming a cleric of Arathus, oddly enough. A priest had shown up in town several years after he had left, and uh, the teachings of Arathus had made sense to uh, had made sense to the people of the rugged wilderness that civilization and community was a good idea to face to overcome their obstacles. Um, he had never been particularly close to his family while he was there. He was always out in the woods hunting and. Uh, training with Tobias, his teacher, and his good friend Aaron, whose death and Hugh's vengeance of said death had actually prompted his exit from town uh, so many years ago. And he went to go and try and find Tobias. Um, he was a shepherd, and so he was rarely out of town, so he wasn't too surprised when he originally uh, didn't find him at first. Um, but after a day... Uh, Hugh asked to see what had become of him um, and discovered that uh, Tobias had left town. After his son Aaron's death, uh, he had been very angry at the orcs and had tried to unite the townspeople to go and battle once again against them. He had fought the orcs in his youth along with Hugh's father and had never felt very peaceful towards them. And after his son being killed, he uh, tried to get people a vengeance. But the people of the townsfolk were not very keen on fighting them. Uh, relations between the two towns had become fairly mellow in the last years. Uh, they still gave a yearly tribute, but uh, some small trade had actually begun occurring with furs and things like that. Uh, they tend to just keep keep to themselves and leave each other alone for the most part. So Tobias's rage was 
unfulfilled. Uh, and eventually he got sick of the townspeople and left. And Hugh was sad about that. So, yeah. Um, he went and visited his friend Alan's grave and shed a tear over that and found there wasn't much left for him in town. He... Not even weaving? Not even weaving. <laughs> Especially not weaving. His brothers and sisters were a little bit more strangers to him and they had their own lives living and so he had maybe toyed with the idea of staying for a while but uh, it just didn't seem like a good idea. And so he wondered what to do. Um, and that is where he sat, on the rock, overlooking the wilderness in the valley, pondering. So that's sort of scene one. Uh, next. Uh, Hugh stalked silently through the forest, following the faint signs of the buck he had wounded. He had been sure that the shot... He had been sure that he had the shot when something had spooked the creature, and it bolted just as he released his bowstring. Instead of the quick death that Hugh had planned, the young buck now had an arrow in its guts that likely would cause it to die slowly and painfully. He had been tracking it since shortly after dawn, and now the sun was high overhead. He stopped for a moment to consider if it might not be a good idea to make his way back to the clearing, where he had left his horse and other supplies. If the buck was strong enough, he might end up chasing him for a few days, and it would be much easier up by horseback. Uh, just then, Hugh froze. Had he just heard something? He crouched down, unshouldered his massive bow, and paused for a moment, trying to spot the source of the sound he had heard. Suddenly, with a sigh, an arrow flew from the forest towards Hugh's heart. Reflexively, Hugh spun, felt the arrow slide along one of his ribs, and loosed a pair of shafts back at his assailant. Um, the forest was still, and Hugh took cover behind a tree and waited for a while to see if more attacks were forthcoming. Uh, seeing that none were, he cautiously made his way towards uh, where his ambusher had been hiding. He found a dead elven woman. Both of his arrows had struck home in her chest. Uh, she was dressed in fine green leather, and her appearance didn't look like that of a bushwhacker. Hugh cursed Avandra for her sick sense of humor occasionally. Uh, Hugh had originally been drawn to this area because of reports from hunters that people had been disappearing in these woods. Um, travelers would make their way through, and no one would come back out. After his pondering on the rock, he decided that the next best option was to go back to the life that he had been living, going from town to town looking for uh, people that he could help or ways to make adventure. He had a, I don't know, a hunger for violence, I guess you could say would be the word to put it. <laughs> Not so much then. I don't know. He wanted to kill everything that moved, but... Not Adventure. He was sort of an adrenaline junkie, I guess you could say. And true adventurer. Yeah. And uh, so he he made his way to this area. Um, he'd gotten kind of lonely lately, and but he didn't really know what else he could do other than just keep on doing what had been working before. So as Hugh examined the elven woman that lay now dead on the ground before him, he. Noticed that her clothing was looked uniform. There were some insignias here and there, and she had pouches. And he began to wonder if more she was alone. It didn't make sense that travelers could be, I don't know, being 
killed in mass numbers by a single elven woman. And just then, as he was wondering this, he heard a shout in a language that he did not recognize, but assumed was elven, uh, as a powerfully built elven man charged at Hugh from the forest, and as he turned to respond to his assailant, he suddenly got clubbed in the back of his head and uh, fell unconscious. When he awoke, one, two, three, pages. Uh, when he awoke, he found himself bound and gagged and tied to a tree. Uh, before him stood the. Before him stood an elf, not the same who had attacked him before, but another man. Uh, he seemed in command of himself, and there were several elves about. It appeared to be an encampment. Uh, there were some tent here or there, and there were a couple elves in about in the area. Um, the man addressed Hugh while several others were looking through his things. Hugh's horse was in the area, and the things that he had left back at his camp some ways away. Uh, and he took a look at him, and he said, You've killed Lena. She was one of my soldiers, and I can't afford to spare her. She was following my orders, and you should be dead right now. However, I'm short a man, and you look like you can handle yourself. My superior, and he points to a cleric of uh, God Hugh's not too familiar with, but he's never been too familiar with gods, uh, and he says, you don't seem to be a bad sort of fellow, so here's my offer to you. You can die right now and not have to worry about any more troubles in this world, or you can fight with us. We're about to come into some troubles ourselves, and we need as many men as we can get. So, your pick. Fight with us, or die. Uh, given with such excellent options, Hugh chooses the latter. No, former. I don't remember which one it was. Oh, God! Hugh's like, no, wait. story's getting amazing! First one. Second one. Hugh chooses to fight. And, uh, and so the captain says to him, all right... But I still don't trust you personally. So, Remulus here, and he points to a elf, the one who had charged at him originally when he had uh, been overlooking the, I guess, Lena's body. And, uh, uh, will be your minder. Um, you won't sleep. You'll sleep tied up, and uh, we will... See you tomorrow when it's time to collect you for fighting. So, Remulus... Raw deal. Your name is Maximus now. <laughs> uh, Remulus... Maximus Weaver. Maximus Weaver. Weaver to the max. No. Uh, so Remulus uh, led Hugh, not saying much, and uh, led him to a tent where he tied Hugh to a post and left him there. It took about 15 minutes, so 20 minutes or so for Hugh to slip out of his bonds, and uh, he waited there in the tent to see exactly what was going on. Um, he could tell from when he had come in uh, that trying to make his way out of the camp was uh, not a very good idea. Uh, he was pretty well guarded, and there were lots of men who uh, could definitely handle themselves. And so he waited to see exactly what kind of situation these men were in, or elves were in, I suppose. Um, Probably didn't have his bow either. No, he was unarmed and unarmored, and all of his gear was elsewhere. 
So, uh, he slept. By now it was about nightfall, and had an uneasy night, and the next morning he awoke. Ramulus was there, and uh, began to tell him of the predicament that they were in. He said, I'm not going to tell you very much, because you don't need to know it. Um, suffice to say, this hill we are on, and Hugh, uh, I uh, can remember from his recognized from the geography where they were that there, there was a, a largish hill covered with trees uh, that sort of stood out from the plains uh, above this valley. He said, "This hill we were on, we were sent here to protect it, and in about a day's march away, there's a horde of orcs who are going to basically try and kill us all." Um, they're everywhere. Fuck up everything. Every Goddamn orcs. <laughs> we fuck them up everywhere. We need to hold them till about two days from now. After that we can go, we'll be fine. He was confused at this, as what's so important about two days from now. He said, don't worry about it. If you live, you'll find out then. The <laughs> ironic it was the same marching orcs as in Brandis's. Yeah. <laughs> the they just didn't show up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, so... Um, he says, okay, so what exactly do you want me to do? And, uh, uh Remulus says, since we don't trust you, uh, you'll be with me in the Archer Brigade. Uh, you'll stand back with everyone else, and you'll be shooting, and I'll be right next to you, so if you try and think about running, don't. <laughs> Just I like these elves. But serious elves. Uh, he asked him, have you ever fought in a ranged unit before. <laughs> uh, Hugh question. kind of chuckles, but then he actually thinks back and says, well, I've certainly fought with other people at distance, but how many people we're talking about? He says, about 50 men they'll be firing with. And he says, no, I don't think I've ever actually fought with 50 other archers at the same time. And he says, all right, well, you'll figure it out. <laughs> all right. Just shoot where they shoot. Uh, so... Pointy end goes that way. <laughs> uh, Remulus leads him around, shows him a couple of the other men. Uh, pretty much just shows him the hill, points to their fortification, says, We're pretty sure they'll be attacking from this direction. And he points uh, down into the valley. It's between another hill there. We think they'll most likely come to us uh, over this direction. There's a bog on the other side of the hill. We're not expecting too much from there. Um, and they should probably come right about Suntown. So... You can wait here. Uh, food will be around in an hour or so. And, uh, yeah. So, you got to sit and wait out the day, wondering just how this was going to turn out. So, sunset came. And, sure enough, uh, from the opposite hill, the sounds of orcs marching became very clear. Uh, <coughs> orcs marching is a pretty obvious sounds. They have drums and there's lots of screaming and they tend to burn any woods they happen to be wandering through. They get a little losses at that, but they just like burning woods. You'd be surprised. Uh, so Maybe not. Maybe not surprised, <laughs> if you're familiar with orcs at all. Uh, so, Hugh uh, is lopped in with these other archers and the first he says, alright, they're going to come. Um, try and shoot what I'm shooting at. <laughs> and fire when I say fire. So he says, okay. Sensible. Uh, and the orcs come. 
the cleric who is leading all these men um, does some incantations and rituals and praying to a god by the name of Corellian, who heard Hugh heard of once maybe in passing, but hadn't really looked into it very much. Um, and the orcs uh, approaching uh, carried banners with a black eye. It sort of looked like to Hugh, but he wasn't entirely sure if that's what it was. But it looked like a dark black eye and a red banner. And they marched coming down the hill. And the first battle was harsh. Um, the elves, excellent archers, managed to weed out most of the charging orcs, but uh, many fell of uh, the front lines of the elvish warriors with their twin-bladed swords. The fighting was fierce, lots of blood was spilt, and uh, eventually the orcs retreated. Um, you said, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I did good. And Remulus said, that was just their test. They're come, they'll come a full... Uh, They'll come with their full strength uh, later on tonight. And uh, you said, great. <laughs> you said. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Hugh waited. And while he talked, he chatted with Remulus. And tried to get a better idea of why they were here. Because he figured any information would be a good idea as to why he is... Might help him get out of this. Uh... So he, Remyos tells him that the followers are most likely, that the orcs are most likely followers of Grumish, who is a uh, arch nemesis of the god Corellian, and they have been battling ever since. And their cleric had been led to this spot and told to guard it until the rising of the crescent moon, which would be the next night. And so, uh, Remulus wasn't too convinced that they were going to make it, hmm. because the orc horde that was now there seemed pretty substantial. And he wasn't entirely sure if they were going to attack that night, or if they would make it through the attack that evening. But the evening came, and the attack didn't come. Uh, Hugh didn't know what was going on, and uh, slept through the night happily, without having to be woken up for more fighting. Um, pluses and minuses in his mind. <laughs> he liked fighting sometimes. Silver lining. <laughs> it was sort of pleasant in his mind to be able to shoot from far back at orcs who were far away and watch them fall. Kind of gave him a satisfaction. Kind of the nice, perfect situation of fighting and not being in danger. Sort of best of both worlds. Uh, so the next morning came, and Remulus woke him and said, uh, we have bad news. The reason why they didn't attack is that they had received reinforcements, uh. and they were organizing them. Uh. And so the attack <laughs> will be coming tonight. Uh, if we can hold them off until the moonrise, then we might just make it, but I don't think we will. Oh, oh, like I said, don't go anywhere. <laughs> you yeah. Don't go anywhere. But we'll kill you You're a dead man anyway. He's a half-full kind of guy. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, the day waited. And Remulus tried to mm, improve you. He said, I watched you while you were fighting, and when I said trying to hit what I'm hitting, I really did mean that. Like, when I hit them, try and hit them just as I do. 
if you can weaken their defenses initially, he'll help out. And he gave him a couple other points of trying to be a arching with a unit, I guess you could say. Trying to keep track of targets. This guy's out there, this guy's out there, and trying to keep track of a whole bunch of guys all at once. Um, and so sundown came, and the orcs charged. And at first, they were all able to hold them at the tree line. Uh, but... They didn't. <laughs> Not for very long. Not for very long. Uh, the orcs charged, and uh, they were able to weed them through, but there were just too many of them. And their leader, the cleric of Corellian, uh, shouted out that actually the orcs had made their way around the back of the hill, through the bog, and they were now in danger of uh, losing the clearing. He didn't know what the clearing was. They hadn't told him anything about that. And he didn't know what was going on with that. But that's what they said. They were losing the clearing. Uh, Remulus looked alarmed at this and uh, said, we have to get back. Um, but at the same time, we have to hold them here. So half their forces split off. Hugh stayed where, with Remulus there, uh, while others went to go and try and counter the orc advance from the south, from the bog. Um, eventually, the orcs started throwing balls of pitch on the ends of ropes into the forest. Weapon black. And it wasn't too long until the forest was ablaze and the elves had to retreat or be burned. And so they retreated through the trees and the orcs approached through the burning forest uh, still managing to lose heavily. The orcs didn't make a very quick advance. The elves were good at shooting them in the forest back in their element now I guess you could say. Um and so the orcs' advance was slow. It wasn't long until they... Uh, maybe an hour or so of fighting. Uh, until they were back into a clearing. Which you assumed was one they were talking about. In the middle of it was a uh, strange tree. Which you had not recognized a species of. Which he found it odd because he could name just about every tree that he had ever seen. Um, overhanging a clear pool of water. That seemed to shimmer. Yes. And so the remaining elves surrounded the clearing and the pool and fought with their all to prevent the orcs from getting in. And the fighting was fierce. And Hugh could eventually see uh, what looked like a cleric of some kind, a guest of the god Grumish, who uh, seemed to be bolstering the orc forces. Um... And he pointed this out to Remulus and said, I know, I see him. Let's see if we can take him down. And though they sent arrow after arrow into him, uh, he seemed to be protected by some shield. And so eventually their leader, the cleric of Corellian, uh, went and battled the cleric of Grumish. And they seemed to be wielding forces of their own gods, uh, attacking one or the other. The cleric of Corellian had a long sword and he slashed the orc numerous times, but he countered with his axe, and uh, eventually the cleric of Corellian fell. Uh, and the elves were upset. Were, upset, were very upset. Uh, and Hugh... It was, there weren't many elves left by this point. Uh, about maybe 
10, 15 of them or so. And Hugh was back to back with Remulus. And Remulus said, well, I guess this is it. <laughs> you could run now if you want to try, uh, but <laughs> I think you're try. a dead man anyway. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Dick. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, Hugh fought, and the orcs approached, and several of them started attacking the tree with axes and fire, and uh, trying to pour some sort of strange liquid in the pool. They wouldn't know what was going on with that. Uh, and eventually, uh, Hugh fell. Arrow struck his shoulder, landed on the ground, he went down. Uh, Remulus went down, it looked like all was lost. They were going to die. Uh, and at last moment, the crescent moon appeared in the sky. Creeped up over the horizon, and a pale beam of light struck the pool. Um, and at that moment, a beast rose up from the water uh, that the orcs were trying to poison and like poison it appears. And it appeared to be a unicorn. Oh, cool. Strange unicorn. And from it emanated a burst of uh, clear white energy and knocked back the orcs who were around it and filled them with terrible fear. And they fled. And they escaped. And that was about all Hugh saw before he went unconscious. Not that uncommon thing of seeming to fall unconscious just as the <laughs> fighting awesome ends. <laughs> At least you got the unicorn before you awesome went down. Unicorn. You saw the unicorn. Awesome. Um, <laughs> he woke the next day and uh, was woken by Remulus, and there were seven or eight of the remaining elves of the maybe 200 who had been there initially. Oh, and he said, Well, we were successful. I guess. Uh, you can learn the details now of what happened. But it was a uh, avatar of Corellian. And we were sent here by a vision of our cleric to protect this place while it was released into this world. And we just had to protect it until it got out. And we did. And survived by the skin of our teeth. Um, so you've... Uh, <laughs> you were pretty much a dead man, but... You helped us through it, so you can live now. And uh, but here we have to handcuff you. It's been time. <laughs> it's been time. Uh, it's time uh, so he says, "Be on your way. Leave this place." And uh, yeah, but if you, uh, we'll call it even. In the at least, maybe we won't kill you on sight next time. We should happen to see you in our territory. Um, Thanks, man. So he left the area, bewildered, somewhat educated. And uh, vowed to try not to get involved with gods again. Thought he would have learned that the first time, but he didn't really know when to get into this into this one knowingly. Um, and so that's kind of one event of Hugh's year, and so last event, um, Hugh is lying in a small copse of trees. It is a clear night. Well, no, not clear night. Slightly drizzling and cool, but not unpleasant. Sort of a nice rain. It's, uh, he's lying on his back, and he's wondering about what's been going on. He's been traveling for seven or eight months now in the year. He had a strange event with the elves, and he had tried to visit home. And all in all, he had been a little lonely. Uh, the elves hadn't been particularly 
warm to him, we'll say. And uh, his events at going at home were uh, honestly not much warmer. Uh, his family was nice to see him all, but they were strangers. And he had wondered, was this really all there was to life? I mean, he enjoyed going about town to town and uh, visiting people, but he had never really stuck it with a group of adventurers before, you could say. He had His first group he had met with, but they had all... He had been the sole survivor of it, and after that, he uh, he had just gone where there was trouble and grouped up with people. Uh, but he never really went, I guess you could say, adventured with the same group twice. Uh, and he actually found it odd that for the first time after the events at Hamlet, why he was not the first one saying, well, so long, folks, guess we won't see you around, and everyone else just sort of split off. He wasn't that... Uh, disappointed, but uh, I don't know. It was what he was used to, and so he was wondering. I'm getting kind of kind of lonely. It would be nice to know some people. So while he's sitting on his bedroll under a warm branch, uh, a he sees a a figure moving towards him from the other side of the forest. He reaches for his bow, but realizes it looks like a wood nymph. Uh, wooden nymphs are usually nude. Um, oh. This one was as well. Uh, he had glimpsed, caught glimpses of wood nymphs uh, throughout his travels in the forest. <laughs> no, no, this was a female. Um, but none of it ever approached him before. He wasn't exactly the best looking uh, human. After a huge beard. He had kind of a huge beard some of the time. Thank God. And uh, But he never actually had a wood nymph approach him. And so he's lying on his back, just kind of wondering what exactly is going on. And as the wood nymph slowly kept moving closer and closer to him, um, he thought that maybe she was sleepwalking. <laughs> he wasn't exactly sure. She was acting rather oddly. And so he kind of had a hand on a, on a knife, but uh, didn't really... I don't know. What would you do if a naked woman was walking up to you slowly? Not really do anything bad, and you didn't really get that much action. I mean, he, he really paid for the women he got most of the time. Uh, and so, she slowly kind of sidled up next to him and got really close. What? <laughs> took a sniff at him. Put her mouth close to his ear, and he heard the words, Hugh Weaver, this is a wrath. You are wanted. <laughs> and she dropped a note next to him and stumbled off into the forest. And he said, that motherfucker. <laughs> so sad. Oh, it's so sweet. And he had cue balls. <laughs> and he got a cue balls, you can say. <laughs> no. And so Hugh got this note, and he was like, well, maybe this isn't such a bad idea. He had been wondering, what is he going to do? And he'd never really been with the same group twice. And he's like, well, maybe this would be a chance to, to make some friends, to adventure with the same group of people. And so he... Took a chance. Took a chance and decided that he would respond to a rat's cry and make his way out. And that is you. For a split second, I was like, whoa, is he gonna like describe a sex scene? I was looking for like that soft porn music. I'm like, dude, Craig, I was like, this is gonna be so awkward and awesome all at the same time. I know. That was beautiful. That was a beautiful ending. Uh, that was just a beautiful ending. Like, you Weaver, I want you. <laughs> Kira Weaver, 
<laughs> it's, it's a rock. I love the elves just totally fucked him. <laughs> Let's kill this guy. No, 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 you're gonna kill with us. Oh, you're dead anyways. Oh, now you can go. Next to a post. Jerk elves. Yeah, real oh. jerk elves. Well, jerk wouldn't. He wasn't there. Welcome to our camp. Our problems are now yours. Arath, and our problems magic, are pretty severe. You know, he basically is just like, get this message. Magic, do it. Yeah. <laughs> It helped Brandis out of the jams away. Not yeah. you. <laughs> Not you. Not you. I can see him putting a gaius on a wood nymph and saying, "He's gonna be in the woods somewhere. Go find him. Go yeah. find him. Go find I mean, him. in a completely like logical way too. It's just like, like who, who's in the woods? Who's in the woods? Like, uh, there's no beavers. There's no badgers around. Uh, there's a wood nymph. There's You're a in the wood woods. Nymph. Hey, go find Hugh. I need him. He's over there. She's just like, ah, fine. <laughs> like takes off. <laughs> I like your. Oh, fine! I'm making okay, fine! Get me out of here! 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 Oh, Paragon Path was the Battlefield Archer. There's about That's two sweet. sentences worth of description in it nice. in the player's handbook. Do you? It says, you're really good at arching on a battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> yeah! Yeah! Hi, so he took what he learned from the elves. Uh, elves he took what he learned from the elves. That sounds like Brandon. You, know, you just do what you do. And, and I mean, he just you know, went along with it. Hey, yeah. dude, the, the what, Martial Paragon has a lot of where like you swing swords. Now you swing swords better. <laughs> you shoot arrows. Why are you doing more the same? You just You're do even it. better at yeah, that. You're better. At last seven out of two hundred, I'd say he probably picked up a few tricks. Yeah. For yeah. sure. It's true. true. With that it's many true. numbers. What, like, uh, we've wh- never fought that many. What could we expect to see on the bat? Any, like, um. Shoot, <sighs> no magical tricks. Uh, uh, he's, he's better at keeping track of multiple targets. A little okay. better than he was before. And he cool. really doesn't like orcs. And, uh. Those orcs really pester us a lot. Yeah. Dude, those Doom Dreamers needed some of that Grumush magic. Hugh just lit them up all day with his arrows. They need some of that, like, shield thing. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were getting great. protected. By but, some sort of dark magic. No, but <laughs> what else? Uh, he keeps track of people. Guys, uh, he can make a shot count if he really needs to. He can, on his action okay. point, he can reroll an attack or damage roll or oh, something so like that. Nice. And Instead of blowing a unicorn, action. whatever he wants. No. Some of nymphs? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for dailies, rerolling an attack is like. Um, yeah. Hey, so, burning an action point. Plus oh, two, and he can also. The immediate reaction, food. someone hits a guy, he can shoot them a as gar- well. Like a better chance nice. of getting so, an amazing encounter power. Uh, yeah. Plus two to. I don't, I don't actually have any. I don't have any huge striker kind of daily things. Did we yeah, talk I about Kalen's Paragon? We didn't talk about Kalen's Paragon path. Not to rewind for We started, but then it just got. Um, what do we expect to see? Uh, yeah, in the future of Aurora. As far as her powers, I can't recall them off the top of my head, but. Um. Basically, she's she's a justice seer, which justice. is justice seer. Justice seer, yeah. not just a car. We actually had this conversation before. Yeah, we did. Not We're just a car. On this conversation, there's a, there's an I between or, the C sorry, and the A. A justice That's how you pronounce it. There you justice-ier. go. Justice seer. Oh, so it's one word. I think it's a justice seer. I was uh, like, uh, you uh, see justice. I always pronounced it just a car. Well, the I know, two there's another word. The same way. There's, yeah. a, there's oh. a separate word. Just That's, a car is... We have this conversation. Yeah, we uh, have this conversation. Just a car is a justice... A justice I looked at how to pronounce it in anticipation of this event. <laughs> yes. She did her homework. She used Herbie a pronunciation dictionary. Yep. 
Okay. Who else did that? Who else did that for the crown of hats? I didn't. Most people can pronounce Battlefield, battlefield Archer. Archer. <laughs> I was not confused. quite so difficult. Oh, battlefield, like a battlefield. Battlefield? Like a like battlefield. Bat- 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 demon or Demone? Demone. Demone. Decided to go with the first. Um. So yeah. Uh. Basically, it's it's what you might expect. It's someone who's like totally obsessed with. Um, dishing out the justice. Basically, she's Batman. Um, oh, so all right, end it there. There you go. Bat dwarf. Now I know. Now you understand. Bat dwarf human. Any uh, any particular power that we should look for? Bat-Nora. Like like she says, like justiciar. Go. No. Activate, and then we all should like duck or something. Oh god. Um, <laughs> Dude. <laughs> uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of like any of her powers, and they're just not like, not coming to me. But um, more marking. Cool. And there's one thing where she can basically take all the damage from like an area of effect attack. Ooh. Oh yeah, you of, talked like, one about guy. that. Yeah. You just have a bunch of guys. Like you, even if she's not even a target of the attack, she can be like, oh, uh-uh. yeah, she can redirect one attack to be on her. So it turns cool. it into an automatic hit. Turns it into an automatic but hit. But it misses takes the damage, everybody else. But That's no awesome. one else gets hit. So or that's but you only get one damage worth of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so like a dragon's breath that hits the entire party, she yeah. can just use that, she gets hit, no one else does. Cool. I'm looking for a description for that. I'm curious yeah. how that you know. <coughs> I'll I'll no. be thinking about that. That won't be for like another level. Yeah, that's oh, level twelve. Oh, that's level twelve. That's yeah. level twelve. But but you'll see that eventually. I don't even know level 12. So that's there. But yeah, she's just um but she's still regular old Aurora. She's just got a, a little bit of a, Nothing is regular about Aurora. Well, you know, for Aurora. <laughs> Regular four or uh, Sweet. So, uh, Damon is next. Let's do it. Oh, yeah, this is like. It may be too much, but it's all Damon. So, here goes. Um, as uh, we left off, Damon had slowly or quietly made an exit from Hamlet and returned to. Oh, yeah, I'll pass around. I have a couple pass outs. I'll pass around the beautiful. Uh, the beautiful uh, portrait of Damon that Aurora has uh, drawn for us. For those of you listening on the internet, you can see this image on the website. So Thursday night <laughs> It's a fucking amazing Knights picture. Uh, I like it. Donations are always welcome. Knights is spelled with a K. So I uh, PayPal. All right. See? Our guy uh, Damon. Yeah, he had uh, he had he slowly uh, quietly crept away and returned to the uh, Dusk Elf community. Um, in, in the forest on the way to Raster, where he had uh, been hiding out and kind of trying to, to, to wait out uh, and find out more about his kids, uh, kind of this new condition. It has been a bit of a, a refuge for himself, and he, re- he returned there um, shortly after, uh, after the celebration of, uh, um, of the victory at the Temple of Elemental Evil, or of the battle at the Temple of Elemental Evil. And, and he had left uh, instructions for, for people at the town to keep in contact with him so that he could return to watch over uh, his friend Arath, who was, uh, who was quite seriously wounded um, at this battle. Uh, one morning, uh, three weeks after the return of Damon from the Dusk Elf camp, Lady Alinara opens the door to her boudoir and finds the circlet of Sehenin that she had given Damon placed upon her doorstep. She is sad that Sehenin was unable to calm Damon's troubled heart, and as the days pass, she finds an even deeper sadness in the possibility that he may have left for good. Damon returns to visit Arath and Hamlet. Arath is woken from his coma and is on the mend. 
A few jokes are exchanged about the comforts of a hospital bed after a month without movement. Damon spends a few days with Arath. He plays the role of secretary and specimen, retrieving books and scrolls for him, answering many questions about himself. Damon is glad for his friend's return to his usual self, but he is restless. After four days, Damon bids a somewhat disappointed Arath farewell. A month after his departure from the Dusk Elves and the company of his wizard friend Arath, Damon crosses the border of Narfel. For the first time in ten years, he tastes the familiar air of the place where he was born and grew. The mists that have followed Damon begin to break somewhat, yet the natural weather of Narfel is so drab and uninviting that even he does not take note. Damon visits a few of the natural places that he remembers from his earlier days as a bounty hunter. As he continues to travel in northerly direction, he finds that memories from his life as an elf hold images and feelings that seem flat and unfulfilling. Like a picture cast in grayscale, next to the same in living color, the latter exudes more life, energy, and activity. Another week passes and Damon crosses over Narfel. Lack of revelation about what to do since he has returned home leads Damon to seek a long-term abode. He shuns the notion of any of the populated settlements for fear of inadvertently causing damage or injury. Fear of his destructive power and insecurity with his physical makeup, combined with his resilience to the elements in this land to encourage a rugged, a rugged setting for his more permanent living space. With the mobility granted to him by his faithful friend Kalar, Damon is able to find a suitable spot within a few days. Fifty miles from the Great Glacier Wall, and we're talking up here since we got the map going on. Narfell and the Great Glacier, which is north of, of that. Yes. Fifty miles from the Great Glacier Wall lay a range of smaller mountains that linked together to create a valley between them in the shape of a Y. The stem of this valley is a valley that is, uh, or the stem of this shape is a valley that is roughly twenty miles long, and at the apex of each is a, uh, each of the forks is a small village um, that has been established there. The setting is remote to say the least, and the more Damon circumnavigates the area, the more he likes the idea of living in seclusion, yet nearby a society. Damon works to locate the tallest tree at the highest altitude on the mountain, and here he constructs for, uh, for himself a home. A simple platform with no roof and an open frame walls. The structure provides uh, a place for him to rest, and absolutely no protection from the elements, elements which he prefers. Here Damon spends time thinking and resting. He continues to hike and fly and practice with his weapons, but uh, he feels more that he is surviving than living. Damon, who is a naturally cur curious creature, is drawn away from his solidarity, and he begins to traverse the mountain trails and investigate the status of the two villages below. A week, of, a week or so of stealthy and acrobatic spy work revealed that the two villages, East and West Colcran, are each of a population of about a hundred and consist of, uh, consist of primarily taboo root farmers and goat herders, with two or three craftsmen smoke, uh, thrown in the mix. The people of the two villages are populated entirely by, uh, by Goliaths and live in seclusion from the nomadic tribes in the region. Damon delights at watching the villagers go about their tasks with stout effort and quaint seriousness. One, boy, uh, one young boy grabs his attention particularly. The, live or the lively child is not more than nine or ten years old and has curiosity and adventurousness that are remarkable. The boy is loosely dutiful as he tends his family's goats, performing his labors in the most minimal fashions. This Spartan approach to tending goats is not at all born out of laziness, but a desire to be off on excursions into the hills and trails as soon as his duties permit. Over the course of a few weeks, Damon observes the young warrior do battle against all manner of trees and bushes, armed with both stick and stone. He sees him righteously liberate toads and salamanders from a marauding osprey, and uh, supervises with near-compulsive laughter as the child scales a boulder, 
plants his flag of victory, and then loses his footing to fall head over feet all the way to the bottom. A second of worry gives way to relief as the hardy mountaineer picks himself off, running off in the direction of some new daring pursuit. After three weeks of observing the villagers from both East and West Colcran and learning most of their names and trades, Damon finds himself forced to make a choice. The boy, by name of Colbin, has let his sheep graze unnecessarily far from the village this day. With the onset of, onset of winter, the more succulent grasses are now farther up the mountain, and the goats have no reservation straying from their usual grazing spots to eat tastier grass. This day Colvin has set off on a new adventure and has failed to realize that a pack of, pack of six timber wolves has spotted the goats and is preparing to make the herd their next meal. Damon would have preferred to remain out of contact with the villagers, but it, the instant he sees the wolves, he rolls his eyes and knows that he must act. Damon attacks with speed and efficiency, dispatching two of the wolves and driving off the rest. The size of the goat herd and the spread of the wolves called for some fairly tricky shooting, but mo mobility is a forte of Damon's new form, and he is unruffled by the event. Turning to leave, he sees Colbin standing less than 20 yards away up the hill. Damon decides that a speedy retreat is the best option, but before he can act, the boy responds in a loud voice, That was incredible, says the boy, as he begins to run down the hill on stubby legs. Damon, completely unprepared for close quarters, panics. Scanning wildly, he realizes that he is trapped between a wall of goats and a brass-charging tiny tot. This child reminds him of Orem. Instinctually, Damon takes to the skies and soars away into some underbrush, away from the boy. As Damon reviews the altered playing field, it dawns on him that he has made another terrible blunder. The boy, who was initially amazed, is now awestruck. Not only can this creature fight, but it can also fly and loves to play hide-and-seek. Damon searches frantically for a method of covert escape, but finds that his cover is an island of bushes 50 yards from the nearest tree line. <laughs> Sighing as he resigns himself to contact, Damon steps out into view and gracefully bows to the child. Good morning, Master Colbin. I trust your goats are well. <laughs> These words begin a very fulfilling friendship in Damon's life. Damon and Colbin spend the next month roaming the slopes surrounding East Colcran. Exploration and archery practice are combined with, with lessons of wilderness lore and exercise. The time passes. Damon is living completely unburdened by his past, and the future is a fresh spring morning. The seasons continue to progress, but as the temperature begins to drop in Narfell, the weather surrounding East Colcran stays sunny and mild. Damon has had contact with both villages in the area by this time, and he begins to feel more confident in, in beginning to integrate himself uh, in the local communities. It is not long before the people of, east, of the village East begin to notice a connection between the weather and the strange new traveler who has arrived. At first there is some trepidation, but in the harsh, harsh wilderness of Narfell, extra weeks of sun and warmth mean more than comfort. The unnatural warmth has helped the winter calving of the goats, and the taboo root harvest will be especially good with the extra time to help the plants mature. Damon dwells very little on his connection with the weather, and is happy enough to get to, uh, to, get to know the villagers. Another month goes by, and life continues at much the same pace. The sunshine, the sunshine persists, and the families of East, Col East Colcran where Damon has become an increasingly common figure, are at this point warm and thankful for the blessings of friendship uh, of the friendship of their guest. One day, a few young men from the village west, uh, village of West Colcran, come to the village east and uh, to meet with Damon. They explain that they have not seen him in a few weeks and that they wish to have a celebration with him to hear some of how he has come to this area deep in the wilderness of Narfell. Goliaths are not generally curious about information like this and more often rely on the passage of time for such details to come out. But Damon is pleased by the invitation, and leaves with the youths, the youths later that day. Three days later, Damon finds himself spending another night locked in an iron-fortified wooden prison. The Goliath of West Colcran 
envious of the sun and prosperity of the village east, discovered that the favorable weather was due to the elf of winds that stayed the winter's hand. Their response was to lock Damon away and demand that he bring them an endless summer. The eight-foot-tall town leaders Gokan and Vitak have given Damon no food and have come on, on a daily basis to berate him. They accuse Damon of holding back on them and then to mock him of having lost his powers. Damon spends all of his time meditating and dwelling on peaceful thoughts. He's aware of the danger of losing control of his emotions. He is also having trouble ignoring the rage that is forming within him. Another day goes by, and the gray skies that have ruled West Colcran grow even darker. More insults and accusations. The following morning begins with strong mountain winds and thunder rumbling in the distance. Villagers are rushing to pen their flocks and prepare for the storm. A few wander the common area in the middle of town, eyes glancing towards the wooden prison, prison where the sunmaker is held captive. Gokan and Vitax stand together consulting, deep frowns upon their faces. A bolt of lightning cracks overhead, and the wind picks up, howling in their ears. The heavy goliaths are well grounded, but the structures of the village are beginning to take damage. A goat blows by, bleeding in panic and confusion. It is time for him to die, shouts Gokan over the screaming winds. He and Vitak turn towards the prison and draw heavy clubs. Clubs. The wind is even fiercer, it power, its power hindering their movements. Ten paces left. Vitak tries <laughs> to take another step, but it never lands. He is lifted, wailing, as he is blown into the air and thrown thirty feet, breaking through the wall of a stable. Gokan holds on and raises his eyes to the sky. Above, the dark sky churns as the mouth of enormous tornado funnels down from the heavens. Like the maw of some terrible leviathan, it strikes the village, swallowing everything in its path. A mile away in the shelter of some rocks, a young Goliath watches the devastation unfold. Damon regains consciousness, kneeling on the few remaining boards of what was the floor of his prison cell. He struggles to his feet and casts his eyes about. The scene of destruction nearly makes him swoon. A cool wind blows down from the mountain, remorseless, swirling through the high grasses, creating the only movement in the entire village. Among the wreckage of every cottage and building in West Colcran lie the bodies of tens of Goliaths and over a hundred livestock. The figures are cut and broken, tossed into odd spaces, resting in unnatural positions. The looks on their faces are visages of horror, and the decimation of their lives in town is complete. In a trance, Damon turns north and begins to walk. No rest, no food. It took some time to drive Kalar away without hurting her and without her returning. Damon now walks slowly and painfully across the ice. He is struck out on the great glacier and he means to die. The wind and snow swirl around him, battering him and piercing him with a cold so fierce that it nearly overwhelms him. He imagines the poor citizens of West Colcran, led astray by those with greed in their hearts, to die in the tempest. He will die soon, too. It is fitting. His life for their lives. A sort of penance. Silly, but there is nothing else. The lone figure slumps in the blizzard. Another cold mound in the endless land of icy hills, valleys, rivers, and mountains. Pain is the first thing that he feels as he returns to the world. Damon is lying on the ground in furs. He sees the walls and ceiling of a crystalline palace. He's staring at his own reflection. No, the face is very different. It's the eyes that are the same. Damon fades in and out of consciousness over the next few hours. A day later, Damon meets his saviors and the worst headache of his life. The face that he observed is one that is handsome and strong, beautifully decorated with winding, artistic lines of glowing blue energy. A tall and strong wind-souled Janassi enters the room. 
It is, the, it is a room made of ice, but no ordinary igloo. The place is both sturdy and decorated. The very ice of the walls take place in an elaborate display of winding shapes and textures. Damon has limited time to contemplate the scene before the Janassi speaks. I am Uman Kai. Please, let us sit and talk. And talk they did, and many other things as the month, months passed. For it is during this time that Damon learned of his origin, and even some answers to the present state of his physique. The small community of Wind Janassi had been living in this region of harsh climate and seclusion for generations. It is here many years ago that a powerful elf, elf archdruid came at great risk to himself as an emissary of his people. He feared the constant warring of the tribes in Narfel, and more than that he portended the rise of a great evil. To save his people, he pleaded with the Janassi to help his people develop and evolve. Help them join the cold dwellers on the great glacier and find peace and escape from events to come. This great druid was a master of elemental magics and uh, proposed a crossing of the races to use their elemental energies inherent in the Janassi to awaken the arcane fey energies locked deep in the fiber of all fey creatures. Long generations have separated elf kind, elf kind from those powers of the Berlani and the Gael Eladrin, but the raw and natural biology of the Janassi could help them recover a portion of what was lost and help his people survive. Umankai and Daemon sat for many days with the elder of the Svati, which is their community, to help uh, to hear the retelling of the story. Time not spent teaching. Or time not spent teaching Daemon, the history was spent developing control and contact with the rhythms of Daemon's new elemental heart. Daemon did not fear his emotions, for here was a land where destructive elements were the status quo. He dwelt much on the nature of destruction. Daemon and Umankai trained together in the meantime. Umankai was a great warrior and taught Daemon many things. The training, yielded, uh, the training yielded for Daemon a release and control of elemental air that he had not considered possible. He found that his fey nature gave him talents that the, that the Janassi themselves had never seen. Their swords rang in the chill winds of the great glacier, and the elements themselves answered their calls. Even with all of this, Daemon felt dark and unwhole, plagued by nightmares of the wasted village west, and overcome at times by dark shadows of his past. Daemon could not find the, rhythm, the rhythms of his elemental heart. The Janassi taught him that without that rhythm, he would always be the leaf, tossed hither and thither by forces not at his command. One night, Daemon sat with Uman Kai as he played on his flute. Must I go? asked Daemon, voice low. No, answered Uman Kai. We must go. Daemon listened as he was told that, unlike many civilizations who believe one must bark, embark alone on a journey to conquer one's demons, the Janassi saw only foolishness in this. Strength and balance are found in the unity of the elements and the community here in this village is too weak to support Daemon in his tribulation. Daemon's grandfather, the Archdruid, was promised by Talaf Kai, father of Uman Kai, that for friendship, he and the Janassi of the Great Glacier would do what they could for the elves. <clears throat> Uman Kai and Daemon set out that night due south, south-southwest for a bit, for they had to find someone first. <clears throat> Daemon and Uman Kai Riding aback a drake and, a, and reunited hippogriff, respectively, journeyed for less than a month to arrive at the shining port city of Erisper. During their journey, they had passed through lands that were both familiar and new. Heading south, they, caught, they crossed through the Dunwood, spending a few days again in Homlet. The people were happy to see the return of one of their heroes, and a few nights of merrymaking were unavoidable before the two companions bid the town farewell once more. Skirting the, the forest of Lethir, they traveled through Thesk. The Dragonjaw Mountains were a blast of swirling winds and chilled mountain springs before they crossed the elven nation of Aglarond, 
In Aglarond, a phenomenon that Damon had observed on his recent travels became more apparent. Word had, already begun, word had al already begun to spread about the defense of Hamlet and the battle of the Temple of Elemental Evil. There were ine inevitably some off-color jokes about whether this was the last time the temple would rise, but also there were many looks over their shoulders at Damon while he sat in the taverns uh, or passed through the markets. <coughs> he noticed that elves and Aladrin in particular noted his passing and often approached him to offer congratulations. On a few occasions, he would receive suspicious or hard stares from members of both races, and twice, Eladrin, who Damon had never seen before, approached him to tell him that he was a disgrace to the Fae, and that the Court of Winter would not stand his piracy. Damon had no words for these individuals, and did what he could to forget the exchanges. Passing through Aglarond, a, large, uh, a largely Fae nation, his no notoriety elevated to the point that when Damon and Umenkai had had their final stop before crossing the Sea of Stars, a contingent of elves had gathered to meet them. They were treated to a feast and asked to relate their tale. The Damon related some of the tale himself, but most of the tale was told by the hosts, who had heard it fourth or fifth hand by the merchants and bars that were constantly passing through. Arriving at Airspur was a relief from the attention for Damon, uh, for Damon, and brought back into focus his purpose for such a long journey. The city of Janassi lie on the southern shore of the Sea of Falling Stars, one of the most renowned cities in the Plaguelands. Danger, magic, and exotic culture all contributed to the allure that drew many races to the capital city of Akinul. Uh, we'll pass around this guy, which is just a little picture of that and some words. Yeah. Airspur was the home of, of the Janassi and the center of the Janassi nation. In, if community was what Damon needed to overcome his demons, as Uman Kai has, had suggested, then this place would be the strongest cure by far. The trip down had given Damon and Uman Kai additional time to get to know each other. Most of the time passed in silence, for Uman Kai was a man of few words, but when he spoke it was with candor and genuine interest in conversation. They related, they related tales of their various travels and practiced at weapons when they needed to rest from traveling. Uman Kai was Damon's better by a measure, but in combat he played the part of the tutor rather than the bully. The pair arrived at Airspur with a mutual trust in each other. On the first day in the city, Uman Kai led Damon to the palatial temple of Akadi. For a, for a primordial queen of air, who ruled in the elemental ca chaos, Akadi received rel relatively little attention in the world. Here in Airspur, however, her airwalkers had built her an offering that no god would frown upon. <coughs> Four huge spires, one for each direction the wind blows, projected at an, at an angle from a circular base. Hovering above the base, held by glimmering lines of elemental energy, was a massive orb of ever-swirling winds. The blue vortex inside the orb was mesmerizing, and had Uman Kai not interpreted or interrupted the, mo the moment, Damon might have stayed there for some time. The inside of the building was open and airy. Its main audience chamber had tiered shelves that projected from the walls at different heights. The colors were all done in pastels, with blue and white shades dominating the vista. After several more moments of admiring the structure, a priest of Akadi approached them. The airwalkers were delighted to see Damon. But instead of responding with fascination and investigation as Damon had suspected, they instead spent the time in almost celebratory conversation of the new and unique life that had entered their world. Damon conversed for some time with, uh, with several priests about his history and his difficulty controlling the strange powers granted to him. The priests listened and asked some questions, but never offered any opinions or judgments. They seemed perfectly content to simply or experience the moment and learn as the duo related their tale. Damon eventually found this dynamic a little frustrating, and after several hours he exclaimed, he exclaimed, What must I do? The airwalkers, unstartled, regarded Damon with a smiling demeanor and responded, What do you seek? 
for in your present state you can accomplish much. The Destroyer too has a place in this vast world. Damon was dumbstruck, and as he turned to Uman Kai for support, found his companion nodding in understanding. The air began to pick up around Damon, and for the, for the first time since the village west, he began to feel some of his rage building. Immediately, a huge gust of wind swirled around him, his body began to tumble in all directions, and he was lifted off the ground. Moments later it ended, and Damon, shaken, was barely able to land on his feet as he dropped to the floor. Before him, a windsoul Janassi stood, wearing light blue robes, for the rest were wearing white. Uh, the most distinguishing feature of this new arrival was the serious look on his face. We do not seek the destruction, Damon Freyborn, he stated. As intimidating as the figure was, Damon couldn't help but feel that at least now he might make some progress. His rage quashed, the high priest of Akadi, Salim Ja, led them to another room uh, of the temple and invited Damon and Uman Kai to sit and meditate. As they did, Salim Jai began to chant, and divinely infused winds, tinted with many colors, began to swirl about the room. Damon found himself drawn deep within his conscience. He stood on ice, and before him stretched a perfectly flat plain of, of snow and crystal in all direction. He felt no cold, only fear. In front of him stood massive dark figures of shadow, silhouettes of vicious beasts and wicked, and wicked marauders. Instantly, Damon had swords in his hands and threw himself at the figures. Flailing and fighting with all of his might, he battled the figures to exhaustion. The unrelenting shadow eventually overcame him as he succumbed to its dark tortures. He awoke in a cold sweat, screaming at the top of his lungs. After some recovery, Salim Jai, unflustered, spoke, Your elemental heart is not free. To Damon, he explained that at times, because of selfish desires or extreme trauma, Janassi lose touch with their elemental natures. The conscious mind twists their elemental hearts, and these genasi become dangerous and unstable. Rare cases have perished from their inability to reorder themselves. To Uman Kai, he said, it is good that you brought him here. Salim Jai welcomed Daemon and Uman Kai to Akanul and to Airspur. He charged them to stay and learn of the element of air, to live a life that would put him in most touch with his elemental self, and to experiment with the fey energies that still existed inside him. Daemon left the temple that day exhausted. Wandering the streets, he arrived at the harbor. As the panorama of a beautiful sunset over the water met his gaze, his spirits lifted, and he began to very much anticipate the time before him. Five months had passed, and Airspur was already home. The time had passed in a blur, but his connection with this place had made it feel, feel like decades. Dalman had developed friendships and acquaintances all over the city, for Dalman belonged to one of the most well-traveled groups in the city. Taking the advice of Salim Jai, uh, Dalman sought a place in Janassi society that was energetic and public. Passing by a crowd gathered next to one of the city's many cliffs, Dalman found a high perch on a... Uh, or one day, passing by a crowd gathered next to one of the city's many cliffs, Dalman found a high perch on a nearby lightning crystal, which was a lamppost, and followed the eyes of the crowd to see what had attracted attention. What he saw looked like, looked like more fun than anything he had ever seen. Two wind-souled Janassi, adorned in white and blue-trimmed garb, were perched high on one of the central earth moats of the city. At the signal of another Janassi nearby, the two immediately launched themselves off the edge. Using their innate racial gliding ability, they floated forward as they fell, one pushing off a smaller earth moat some 50 feet below the launch site, the other choosing a different route that landed him on a bridge. It became apparent that this was a race of the two participants, and they both put on a dazzling display of acrobatics as they ran, jumped, glided, and flew in an in elaborate parkour. Traversing half a mile of the city, they arrived at the finish line. 
The race was won by seconds, and at the end, Damon noted the, noticed the winner produced a small scroll from his pouch he was carrying and handed it to the arbitrator. The official cracked the note and read it, verifying its contents. Immediate investigation of the race led Damon to, uh, to what is known as the Air Steppers Guild. The Air Steppers are a league of couriers who, who navigate Airspur's dynamic cityscape. Most of these couriers are windsole because of the advantages of their innate ability to fly and glide. Each Air Stepper is a freelance worker, but the guild abides by a code of reliability, speed, and discretion. Member membership in the Air Steppers was nearly automatic for Damon. His, per his performance at his initial trial was better than many of the veteran couriers. Damon loved his new work, and it helped him to learn the language as well as become acquainted with the structures and prominent figures in Airspur. After, a few months, after just a few months' work, he was invited to deliver a few messages for senior officials in the shipping sector, and once even for the steward of water. In addition, Damon got to know some of the members of the Fire Cabal, a league of, of mercenary defenders who guard Akinul with de jure authority from the Queen. The days were warm and full of new people and things. The Genasi were very welcoming of Damon as a visitor to both their city and their race. Word got around that the Air Steppers had recruited an unusual new member, but to Damon's relief, he, uh, he attracted very little outside scrutiny or attention. He figured that things were so diverse and spectacular in the city that he was rather un unremarkable compared to the city's many wonders. As a member of the Air Steppers, Damon filled his days with people, culture, and language. In, in contrast, his evenings were occupied with more serious fare. Several nights a week, Damon would make his way back to the Temple of Akkadi and sit in meditation with Salim Jai. The ritual that Damon had experienced the first day in Airspur was repeated many times with similar outcomes. Damon would fight the shadowy figures with tooth and nail, every ounce of rage and skill pouring poured into, their undo into undoing their hold over him. Every time, he found himself overwhelmed, sometimes by the shadow's numbers, sometimes by their side, and at times by nothing more than the paralyzing fear that had struck into Damon's heart. Salim Jai would give him very vague advice. He would tell Damon to experiment as much as he could and look at the world around him for inspiration. Uman Kai would come to many of these meditations uh, to lend support, but for Damon, a breakthrough was elusive. When Arath's letter arrived, it found Dam a Damon who was very happy with his life. The struggles that he endured at the Temple of Akkadi were in his mind a healthy part of uh, embracing his new reality. Failure to overcome was at times daunting, Yet the rest of his life was so filled with fresh and positive activities, he, re he rarely d dwelt upon his trials. Damon sits for several hours with the letter, lost in thought. He reflects much upon the last year of his life, all that had happened, his journey, and the new people in his life. And then his mind takes him back further, to the caves near East Dokith, where Damon had first begun to feel again, feel connected to people, his friends, his friends with whom he had gone through so much. A smile creeps over Damon's feature. Smiling has become so much easier lately. This time, the smile is accompanied by a stern brow. Damon leaves his simple room overlooking the Sea of Stars and heads directly to the temple. Salim Jai senses a renewed vigor in Damon, and he enters the meditation chamber to begin the ritual once more. Damon finds himself again standing alone on a plain of crystalline snow. The wind howls and the shadow slowly gathers. Today there are hundreds of them huge tentacled beasts with wide maws full of jagged teeth. It is as if they sense Damon's renewed strength. Damon leaves his swords in their sheaths. He instead closes his eyes and focuses as strongly as he can on the memory of his friends. Fear creeps into him as he senses the beasts growing restless for engagement. They begin to press in around him. Damon does what he can to remain calm and focused. Then someone taps him on the arm. Damon opens his eyes and turns around. It's Ren! 
grinning in classic fashion with, dan with a dangerous look in his eyes. You don't have to do it alone, you know, says the pragmatic gnome. A deep voice behind him says, We have been waiting to join you. Damon turns again and he sees the huge form of Orm Gulf, arms crossed, massive broadsword in hand. To Damon's right and left stand Aurora and Melek, prepared for battle with hungry looks on their faces. Brandis, Hugh Weaver, Arath, Umankai, Malcontent, Yorlik, they are all present. They are forced to be reckoned with. Confidence blooms in Damon as he turns to face the shadow. Abominations roar at the arrival of the new combatants and charge. The contingent of friend turns to meet them, and the vile beasts shatter upon the companions like waves on the rocks. Silence. After the conflict is over, Damon spends time speaking with each one of his allies, thanking them personally before they fade into his memory once more. When he is left standing alone, once more he is puzzled. Or sorry, when he is left standing alone, once more uh, he's, he puzzles that the dream does not end. Suddenly, light shines from above him, appearing before him, standing in the air, are two beautiful fey women. One has fair features and golden hair. The other has silver, silver hair and a light blue complexion. Her hair is constantly in motion, as if perpetually swept by the wind. Their voices resonate with a power that penetrates Damon, and he stands enraptured by the sight of them. The figures introduce themselves as Sehanin Moonbow and Airdrie Fenya of the Seldarine. Damon stands fixated in the presence of the fey deities. Damon. They address him simultaneously, speaking in beautiful yet sad harmony. Your transformation is not one of coincidence or lack of consequence. Instability is on the horizon. The gods and primordials must stand together. Their nature has always been to separate. In time, in time, their division will be their downfall. It has long been the role of the mortal races to unite the deities that rule the world. Through mortal devotion and loyalty, the gods find ways to look past their differences and unify their purposes. You are one that has been chosen for such a purpose. You are not alone in your gifts. Many others have been born, invested with power and potential to help bridge this gap. The gods have sown possibility like seeds in the spring. In the summer, only some will mature to their purpose. Seek them and help them find their way, as you have found yours. Use your gifts. Be cheerful at heart. For, time will come of, for a time will come of grim deeds, and you must have your memories to see you through. Damon returns to the chamber of meditation, a free bird. His elemental heart is uncaged, and all of existence is as new and as old as life. He bids farewell to Salim Jai, who asks no questions. After closing his affairs with the air steppers, Damon makes his way to the eastern gate. Uman Kai, always resourceful, be, resourceful beyond explanation, is waiting for him. Umankai speaks first. I've enjoyed my time in Airspur, but I too must leave. Allow me to go with you, that I might hear your latest tale, and that we might share a few more of the days that we have. Mounting Hippogriff and Drake, the pair flies east, leaving an ever-shining city and taking with them untarnishable memories. Aww. He works for FedEx now. He did. He actually does. And uh, punctuality Warrior, yeah. is, uh, is, uh, cool. is an important value. Cool. So, uh, very cool. That's uh, that's he was up to. Famous stuff with that little kid. I know. Yeah. Someone saw West Dogat blow blow up. Wait, were they all Goliaths? All of them. So the little kid was Goliath. Yeah. How big was he? Uh, that's I mean, what I was wondering. Yeah, I mean, I, actually, I probably, I mean, some of my wording was just too vague, probably. I mean, I, I went over a couple times. But yeah, they were all Goliaths. 
kid was a Goliath, eight or nine years old, probably puts him at like four feet tall. The adults, I think adult Goliaths are like range between like seven and eight. So, like, he wasn't so they're small. They're big, but he's they're not like, like giants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, them was like, what, five, eight? The kid was probably four feet at like ten. Yeah. So he wasn't small, but he, you know, very young, you know? Yeah, but a lot of them died. Yeah. yeah. But. So, um, yeah, the, the Paragon Path that uh, Damon took is called Storm Warden. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, the thing that he can do, uh, whatever, his kind of power that he gets is, uh, you know, when he, when he's next to, at the end of his turn, being next to a guy, he can just assign um, damage that's equal to his dexterity uh, modifier to a guy, just straight up assign the damage. So he's Minion killer. Yeah, he's just gonna be doing like trying to stay and do a lot of melee. His action point thing is he can do a little teleport, like a three score teleport before he uses his action point, and uh, and then beyond that, it's I mean it's a little bit redundant. So at eleventh level he can assign the damage once, and at sixteenth level he can assign the damage to two different people that he's next to. Um, the 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 encounter powers are pretty straightforward. It's just like another what's sword your, thing. What's your dex bonus? It's five now. So. It's, uh, yeah, five damage. So he's gonna be doing a lot of melee stuff. Cool, <laughs> nice. Yeah, very I, cool. I'm honestly surprised at like how like everyone has got some some deity stuff in there. A lot of like, deity. Like there's a lot of options besides deities, but we've got you know Gromish and you know Corona, We got the the paladin stuff going on. I mean, you got the. I mean, it's not so much deity, but it's uh, the, the gods, the pantheon, the pantheon, you know, it's there, Invoker, with, you know, the hell stuff, it's like, you got that, I got, you know, cord going on, it's, uh, I mean, I'm assuming, I'm assuming Arath is gonna break the mold and, and be sticking with, basically, right. Arcane. Arath is a scientist. I'm, I'm assuming that. It could be Mistra. Because, be Mistra, because it's, it's true, may have. I'm honestly surprised that, like, he even had some stuff like he he mentions Evander, but like it was there in the Paragon Path, and it was there between Grimish and Corellan. So it's like I don't know. I'm just I'm like I'm surprised I'm, that no one's I think like, he's gonna show me like I, I'm gonna give these guys a chance, and then he's gonna be like God, you know God, I mean? God, God. All right, I'll see you guys later. It's just not worth it. It's, it's, <laughs> no. a, it's a lot yeah, like yeah. like everyone kind of everyone kind of has their like we all have a very different approach. Well, we all have their different approach, but if everyone had to be like, all right, you got to side with one deity, it sounds like we've all got the. I don't know about Ren. Like Ren seems like he represents pantheon kind of stuff. I don't, I don't know if I've heard if you go for one. I think he's muttered Evandra a few times. Evandra uh, <clears throat> and there's Ren a Rathus like, too. Ren, Ren likes Evandra, but yeah, luck, he. Yeah. I've also have you talked about Rathus before, haven't you? Uh, or yeah. is that just well, in relate to Ren is an equal opportunity. Uh, that's what it seems like, but that like in some ways that's he like does more pantheon he, than yeah. He the rest favors Avandra <laughs> uh, because uh, probably works in the most situations. Yeah, <laughs> but a lot of times he's like, oh god, this shouldn't work. So she's the one I need. To. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, yeah. oh sweet Moses, it's a god there is no situation. way I'm gonna pull this off unless Avandra <laughs> smiles upon me right now. So. Um, roll the d20. That's exactly. <laughs> that's just um, she's built into the, the game. slogan of the event. Roll it. But it was kind of like what he said to to Gorm in his story. He said, "You know, I kind of side with whoever's willing to help me out with what I'm doing." Yeah. Generally, he tries to not side with the evil effed up ones, but. Well, they have their purpose sometimes. He knows, he knows what that can cost sometimes. But I don't know. I don't know. I, I just I just <laughs> like um, 
I mean, we've we've had some some uh, pantheon, some some deity recognition in heroic tier, but I feel like in paragon tier, a lot of people have like given given some props there. I'm assuming a wrath is gonna bring. I'm like, I'm, I mean, I would be surprised if a wrath was like, and then a wrath. Prayed for three days. <laughs> <laughs> you have missed Drag! Well. Let me read well, this. Well, there's only crazy one way we can book. find out. That does remind me. Did you predict uh, uh, Aurora going with Bahamut before she actually said Bahamut? Uh, no, not at all. And when she was, there was the one point where she's talking about the things that she saw in her mind, the justice and stuff, and because you'd done no, a lot of never... stuff, I was wondering if you would pick up on those being mm-hmm. the primary tenants. I, I remember, remember talking about Orm, that. Orm was a user. He wasn't, like, <laughs> necessarily promoting. Uh, yeah. I, I see. I mean, like, he's like, it's me. It's not me? Well, then it's Bahamut. It's not him, and it's nobody else. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, I remember her going more ter- towards the justice. Like, I remember justice being, like, a thing that you've talked about in Visions and just kind of, like, motivation stuff. And I always, like, every time you said it, seriously... Me as Dan Lobbs was like, I thought Arathus was unaligned. Huh. Weird. No, the Bahamut thing is completely untapped. I but Bahamut, yeah, reading, I don't think we've got anyone who's going on the Shining Knight route. I mean, like, he's a badass god. Oh, yeah, it's totally awesome. And also, um, I just gotta say, tornadoes, orc bands, um, a lot of taking Sheriff over stuff. I know. No, no, it's not that. It's when, the, when you said the, the tornado, Forgotten I'm like, realms, The Forgotten Realms, bad year. Bad year, man. They got a lot of bad stuff going on. A lot of just destruction. A lot of monetary damages. A lot of jobs opening up, which is good for people. But I feel like I feel like there have been okay, good time to get into construction. There have been two tornadoes and two like rampaging orc bands. We've got some gnome just had, taking over a castle. Well, we we had like, all three. You're just like beating up a priest. That's not cool. That's not cool. Yeah, Ku and Olgar. Brandis, Kuh and Olgar, Aurora, like, and Melek. All went through, or and uh, no, and Damon all went through Thesk, and yes, Brandis and Damon were both yes. in, in Akinul yes. in Airspur, and, and traveled from Airspur. I might have bumped into you we, if you hadn't left after seemed, half an hour. It seems like <laughs> it was one bad night. It seems like we probably were traveling from Airspur to High Mascar around the same. Yeah, within absolutely. A month, within a month. I just didn't want to have to fuck with Thay. I'm like, eh. No, Thay is... Malik was really from Thay, and the more I read about it, I was like, I have no idea how to work that in without him living in a cave. And being hated. <laughs> it's really unpleasant there. I didn't even know If you're in Thay, they see anyone else, it's like, kill him. If you're from Thay and you're anywhere else, they're like, kill him. I yeah, mean, it's bad news. I, I, I'd like to check out there some. I mean... Yeah. But... Extreme. It's going to be two people on watch at a time in Thay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think we have one more story. Here. We do uh, indeed. You mind, you mind if I pee first? Go ahead. Do you want to? You want to? This is beer. Right looks like you're looking drunk. So I'm ready to go. I will pause. Being so little, we can bring it back pause. a nipper. Pause. All right. So. Greg. <clears throat> Arath. What's your story? Arath. What? What's his last name? After. The destruction. Of after. After the destruction of the Temple of Elemental Evil. Arath is in a coma. Through the orb of silvery death, he wielded power beyond his wildest dreams, but it came at the greatest cost of all, his soul. The orb burned his soul like fire burns through a log, leaving it blackened. When the priests in the church of St. Cuthbert discovered this, they did not have the heart to tell his companions the truth. They said they would take care of him and do their best to save him, but few believed that anything could be done. One of those few was the canonist Yede. She had already suffered loss from this battle, more than her heart could endure. 
After seeing several of her clerics perish in the war and then being unable to return Burn to life, she saw Arath as an opportunity to make it all okay. She spent every day for weeks by his side, using all of her power to bring him back. It took three weeks before she noticed a change. His soul had begun to heal. The black mark upon it was relenting, unable to continue to resist the Canis's prayers. In another week, he awoke. Rath has spent his entire life on his own mission, to travel the world, soaking up as much information as possible. He thrives on the acquisition of knowledge. If given the opportunity to learn something new, he will take it, almost no matter the cost. It has made him few friends. Those he spent time with would find him gone without notice when a, mere, uh, when a more enticing opportunity came up. Thus, it was a strange feeling for him to feel in the week after he awoke from his coma. For the first time in his life, he felt lost. Other than Daemon, he had not even had a chance to say goodbye, for they all had, uh, for they all left to pursue their own lives while he was under the care of the Canonists. He didn't even realize what this feeling was until he sat to meditate on it. And when he did, he came to a realization. They were his friends. He had used the word friends before, of course, but never before had it had the meaning behind it. The events in the Fire Note had changed him. In all of his travels, he had never placed himself in a position that he could not have saved himself from. He always left himself a way out, a backup plan, in case his companions should fail. But in the Fire Node, he had done no such thing. He faced his most powerful adversary, and could not do it alone. Without the assistance of those five people, every single one of them, he would have died there. Yes, he thought, this is what friends are. They are there for you in your darkest hour when you need them most. As he sat there, contemplating these new feelings, he thought about what other people do with their friends. After a few more days of thinking on it, he decided to put pen to paper. Amazing. And for the first time in his life, it wasn't to transcribe a spell or record some observation for later studying. It was a letter. Arriving by magical courier to each of his five friends individually. Oh, that one doesn't. Should I take it out? Uh, that is number one. Yep. It may you not take it out. That. You just have to That's it the only out. one that doesn't. That is for you guys to keep. It's also impossible to read. So As a handout. Try. But you should Does at least read it right it now? look at it. No, I will read it, but I'm reading what it says. Are they each different? No. He, uh, his magic is expensive to send these types of things. <laughs> Much easier to write one and just have five copies of the sent. <laughs> I respect that. He's frugal. <laughs> Well, What's I mean, up, guys? The family so, is good. I am good, too. <laughs> I am good, too. Have fun doing your things. Dear friends, His or her. I am alive. Canonis Yudei has been caring for me since the Fire Node, and with her help, I awoke from my state of partial death a few days ago. I was sad to hear that you all had moved on, on that, in that time, but I understand. I sincerely hope that your own paths take you where you need to go, and that you find happiness. Did you guys hear about Elmo and the Canonists? They're speaking again for the first time in years. It seems that Elmo might have finally forgiven her for the death of his brother. I also heard about Queston. I assume you've already been told. That was very disturbing news. Little <laughs> 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 bastard. Clearly I must be more careful in the future with whom I give my trust. As for me, I will stay in Hamlet for at least a while longer. My body was weakened by what happened, and I sadly lacked the strength to seek out adventure. I doubt there is much I can learn from the libraries here. I may have to pay some adventurers to find some things for me. That would be amusing, don't you think? <laughs> Despite my ailment, <laughs> Elmo has uh, given me use of the training grounds he uses for the new recruits. 
A stationary target uh, made of hay is not nearly as interesting, but at least I can practice my skills. When I do manage to regain enough strength to travel again, I will be ready. A wrath. Two months after the events of the Fire Node, one month after this letter, a second letter arrives. That one you can do a little bow undoing. So you can go ahead and open and uh, see. You can pass it around so everyone can see the uh, the, the beautiful handout. Calligraphy here. Oh, beautiful. this one's fancy. Ooh! <laughs> Please. Don't let. Don't jump me over. Don't pass me oh, by. No, I just, I looking just, to get in on the on the art. Dear friends. On the art. I'm looking to get in on the art. Okay. Dear friends, I have left Hamlet. While I have not yet returned to my former strength, I feel that I am powerful enough to travel safely. Alas, I must stay on the beaten path, but there are still safe places in this or, but there are still safe places in this world that I have yet to visit. I have started my journey by heading south. I have stopped at a town or two along the way, learning what I can. So far, I haven't found a single book to teach me something new. But I am sure if I keep traveling, I will. I was reminded of you all last night. During the night, a group of bandits actually tried to attack me in my camp. That was dumb. Yes. Hell yeah. My wards gave me plenty of warning of their arrival, and I took care of them with barely more than the snap of my fingers. It reminded me of old times. <laughs> in fact, I believe this is the first time I have used my offensive magics on a real target since we were last together. Amazing. Oh, my strength cannot return soon enough. Soon enough. I long to get back to seeking out sources of power deep in the woods, to tracking down troublesome wizards and poring over their spellbooks, and collecting a ransom oftentimes. My heart tells me I should do this now, but my mind knows that I would be in too much danger to do so. You wouldn't believe what I found when I searched the charred corpses of the would-be thieves. A scroll! The bandit had it thrown in his sack with a collection of surely stolen gems and jewelry. The fool must have thought it was a mere trifle. But it is not. The illustration and language on the scroll is an ancient arcane tongue. I have seen very few examples of this script in my travels, and it has always been quite a challenge to translate. It will take me quite some time. If I am lucky, this project will sate my desire for adventure until I am truly ready. A month after that, a total of three months after the events of the Fire Node, a third letter arrives. Why does Eric get all the letters? <laughs> I oh get yeah, all let, me pass the letters. It. I, let me pass it to someone else. I was partially opening it already. Yeah, like, and then uh, he already popped it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, amazing. <laughs> Sloppy seconds. Enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> He's good for me too. That is. The bow's all messed up. It's all disheveled anymore. It's all disheveled. Look, man, it was good for me. Why can't you just enjoy it? <laughs> Eric's already had his way with it. <laughs> Alright, make sure you pass around so everyone can see it. <laughs> I like reading a lot of It's like in middle school. Dear friends, I have arrived in High Amaskar. This is my favorite part. <laughs> oh, my Dear friends, I have arrived in High Amaskar. It is a wondrous place. I've already decided to stay here for a while. I have paid for some land in the Skyclave to open a small shop which I will use to fund my passion until my strength returns. This place is a wealth of information. With the money I, uh, with the money I make from my shop, I will be able to pay for access to the, to the expansive libraries here. Surely a city of this magnitude will be able to teach me something. I hope so. I'm beginning to tire of the ignorance I continue to find in smaller cities. I think you would like it here. There is plenty of adventure to be had. Towering peaks, echoing chasms, and drifting, and drifting earth motes are plentiful, and but a few of the fantastic areas surrounding this magical place. 
Should we ever wish to reunite? I think here would be a good place. I must go now. It appears that my shop is finished conjuring, and I have some advertisements to produce. Here, <laughs> <laughs> Signed, Arath. Two months. Fireworks erupt in the sky that says shop at Arath. Yeah. <laughs> Two months later. They're also, like, charming. A total of five months after the events of the Fire Node. Two months after that last letter? Two months after the last letter. So, total of five? Total of five. And then slowing down. Business is good. So, maybe get to the next letter. Friends, the Skyclave was worthless. <laughs> Two months I spent there, poring over every bit of information I could find, and nothing, not a single thing. I have come to realize that I need to take matters into my own hands. An academy. I created one. <laughs> I created one? With my mind. I am using it to attract others as interested in the arcane and its secrets as I am. We teach the young and educate the mature by sharing our knowledge. I have had many applications already. The worthy have begun work already. Someday you should visit. Signed, Headmaster Arath. You should show them this. <laughs> I like the emphasis. Uh, <laughs> Ren reads it and says, Ooh, I wonder if I can teach the dark arts. <coughs> Defense against the dark arts. Yes! Marinus is receiving these letters in the inner dark, appearing in front of him. Yeah, that one uh, has no way of writing back. I need help! That one was in the While Brandis was in the underdark, just completely still, still in the dark, he saw a spider walk up and it climbed up on top of Corva and then went <laughs> and hopped up. A scroll, and then it scurried off. Forge Brand is like, what the fuck? And me for fear of making too much noise, he whispered into the dark. <laughs> six Corey's months. He's a spider. Six months after wow. that letter. A total of 11 months after the fire node. Goddamn. Another letter arrives. Every one I grab and I start undoing it, I'm like, oh wait, it's not for me. It's not for me. It's not for me. I can have as many as I want. This one is individually addressed by your name. Uh, by each of your five names. Still a form letter, though? Uh, it says Dam and Brandis, Aurora, Ren, Hugh. Depending on who you are. I need your help. A matter of the utmost importance has come up, and I cannot trust those around me with the task. I call on you, as a friend, to help me this one last time. I have arranged for you to meet at a secret location, one month from the day you receive this letter, exactly at midday. I hope this gives you enough time to make arrangements. The parchment you hold in your hands will guide you there. Simply speak the name of the champion of elemental evil, and the magic in the parchment will activate. Very secure. You mustn't let anybody know where you are going. We can't trust anybody. Bimix, wait. Bimix. Wimix. Damn it, what the fuck is his name? Pimix. Damn it. That's the rat. I said the prince of elemental evil. The champion. 
Naomi doesn't show up. Shit. We all get there. I guess Naomi's dead or something. I don't know. Did anyone talk to him? Weeks later, he flies in. He's like, I had to take it slow, eh? Man. I told you I hated magic. <clears throat> Why didn't you just give me directions? Like a normal person. Who shows up first? I don't know who's closest to wherever you're trying to get to. Um, honestly, I mean, we're in the same area about at the 11th month mark. Uh, Who gets there first? Oh, yeah, you, mean, you were leaving Airspur, right? It doesn't work that Airspur. way. Let oh. me explain. Oh. Yeah. It doesn't work He like is that. not done. Oh. Not done. Uh, let me make a little mark here. I'd say we missed each other, though. Nah, yeah, I don't go pretty fast. <laughs> as, well, damn, when you were flying, so... As each of you... Gets to the meeting location. Uh, uh, the, the the scroll that you are holding guides you to, like a, a a map that changes as you walk, showing you where to go. Never showing you your final destination, only showing you uh, where to move to get there. GPS. It guides you deep into a forest uh, near High Amaskar. Everyone can see on the map. High Amaskar is here. There is no forest, so. <laughs> Well, there is a forest. There's a no. That's a. There's uh, always forest. That's a yeah, there's right always there. forest. Yeah. There's no major forest on the map, but there's uh, deep into. There's always some trees. There's two trees next to each other. <laughs> deep into a small forest, and when you finally get to the location, the map indicates that you are there. You find that you are alone. You realize you think I must be the first one here, and so you wait an hour, two hours past midday now when the original letter said to meet exactly uh, perhaps you doubt the accuracy of his uh, of his magic you know planning a month in advance to the exact hour could probably give it a couple hours leeway well yeah sure uh, and then Hugh notices first yeah, his keen senses <laughs> and always being in the forest unless someone else has a super high perception no, not those keys, um, 17 reroll twice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got it he notices that there was a uh, there is a fawn in the uh, in the forest that has been circling him uh, for uh, a couple times now for like the last 10 minutes like you know just kind deer? of moving around yeah and uh, Mr. Tumpkins. Mr. Tumpkins. Oh no, it had to. Be and then Thomas? each of you, Tumpkins, you're right. See, Mr. Tumpkins, a fawn, Thomas. come up to you, and as it comes towards you, uh, uh, it walks directly up to you and speaks and says, "Follow me." Yo. Sup? So weird. What's the voice? Is it a rat's voice? Yeah, is it a rat's voice or is it, it just it a No, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a high voice, almost like you'd expect a fawn to speak. It's very odd. You seem to control stuff around. You, you have the nymph. Are you disappointed? Did you want another nymph? You want another nymph. Like, this time I'm just going to get her. So, like, you can't get play the voice recorder. I'm going to get her. Ren makes no argument and follows the fawn. It takes about two hours following the fawn through the forest. Every once in a while, you kind of stop. Like, did it actually say "follow me" or am I just following a fawn? It's kind of like you you wave at someone you think was waving at you, but and it turns around and it it reassures you. <laughs> yeah, come on. It makes it, it says, more awkward. Continue. Stop talking to me, fawn. Just go. 
So after two hours of traveling, it's now maybe 5 p.m. in the day, five hours after uh, midday, you see, for the first time, another uh, another living being in this, uh, in this forest, as you see your companions all at the same time from different directions. Different fawns? And five different fawns <laughs> coming in from just completely different directions oh, as God. if the point of a star. Yeah. They walk forward and all, and when the fawns get there, all of a sudden, you see they shake their head as if coming out of a trance, and then panic from all the creatures <laughs> and they scatter off in every direction. We immediately run as fast as we can after our individual fawns! Some two people after one fawn! It's chaos! And you see... Each of you. Yeah. Surprise! Yo! Wow. Wow. Uh, Damon is ecstatic. <laughs> he says, uh, he says, my friends, you were given the same letters? It would appear so. Brandon's armor is rusty and bloody. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you would expect to yeah, see. Yeah, I know. And but she just looks at him like, well, I guess the tornado put you down in a safe place. So, some of you a little self-conscious. Mostly. I've had a rough year. <laughs> um, and Brandon says, Ah, Aurora! I see you didn't land in the ocean. <laughs> I think I... I landed in the ocean? Thing, I would have sunk straight to the bottom. Brandon says, Ah! That happened to me once in the <laughs> lake of steam. I led boots on. It's a long story. Was that before or after the uh, goblin army dragon incident? It's before and then again after. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Damon is very struck with, I assume, symbols of Bahamut all over Aurora. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is it And obvious? so he kind of raises yeah. an eyebrow after that yeah. and he says... Uh, no more cogs? That's kind of a long story. He nods and he says, and Arath, has anyone heard from him? Uh, I've been getting letters in a most unusual way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, mine was pretty unusual too. (laughs) 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 He was like, no, it was a regular courier. Nothing weird (laughs) happened. Nothing weird weird at all. I I didn't get a semi. During the... Yeah, it says, we deliver the the mail and air spur in a very different fashion. You deliver mail now? Air he, he says, he says, absolutely. That's pretty he cool. He says, gotta oh. pay the bills. And I mean, hey, I got, a, I got an amazing view of my apartment. It's gonna have to be paid for somehow. He says, we have, I have been uh, hauling in the treasure as much as we have been, as we were uh, back in our adventuring time. Brandon says, well... Not nearly as much bloodshed, I imagine. <laughs> courier business. Thankfully. Well, Red. Uh, R- 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 goes, and then thinks about the town he destroyed, and kind of <laughs> lowers his head a little bit. Ren looks at Daemon, and just kind of smirks and shakes his head and thinks to himself, a mailman? <laughs> I know, it's Good awesome. God, he's had a boring year. And, and actually, on the... Daemon is so happy. I mean, you guys are thinking this, and that's a, uh, a perfectly legit reaction. <sighs> he just seems so happy to be doing it. I mean, just his overall demeanor is just so much more easygoing. He's not stern. He's not, like, the cloak drawn. He's not kind of, like, backing away. He's just very comfortable with himself. Very comfortable with himself, and... That makes Aurora it's happy. It's kind of... It's, it's, a, it's a... He's a kind of got a, a, a fresh kind of demeanor and outlook. 
very engaging and personable. He's a fucking mailman. He talks with everybody now. It sounds like you're pretty... I mean, besides your demeanor changing and um, and the, the Bahamut symbols going all over the place, I mean, are you guys... Do you look different, or is it pretty much... Well, he might look a little I, different. Yeah, do you have a different kind of feel going on, or is it pretty I much am, the same old... I mean... I, I haven't quite gotten back into the full swing of being Ren. I'm still a little bit quiet and reserved, and kind of almost ashamed of what I... What happened? What happened. Mm. You guys don't know any of that, and you don't know what a dick I was, but... (laughs) We uh, do. I... Players do. So yeah. you're kind of a little more like reserved, I'm kind of a withdrawn. Bit more reserved. It's great to see you guys, but you don't have any like fire symbols, any demon symbols. No, maybe on you're anticipating um, the questions. He doesn't and not play it up, right? It's like no, it's in it's, him, it's and in he's me. learning to control it. But yeah. it's I'm not sure you'll get questions have, once like, you start doing it and stuff. I don't have like infernal wrath <laughs> in you. I don't have like an upside down cross tattooed <laughs> to my forehead or under the cheek. Yeah, it's shaped Fire. Burns in my eyes when I get really worked up, but That's I, for now it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty, smoldering. you know, fawns aren't usually car- a jumping off point for that. Yes, yeah. um, and Hugh, oh, I mean, Hugh, well, he's probably rocking a lot of hair right now. Do <laughs> you, you still have the beard? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you still have the beard? Are you still in the Yeah, I he's still kind of. Who's that gorilla? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the last time you saw Hugh, he was clean shaven because oh, yeah. he had spent the night in town before the battle. Right. But is this is a year's Sasquatch. worth of growth. Yes. No, no. I mean, he stopped in a town every once in a while, but you can say he hasn't shaved in like six months or something. Poor Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Okay. That's half the beer. time. That's half the time that we're gone. Same. It costs the same if you're clean shaven or out of Please. Amazing. Double for you, Harry. You might find a scar or two that he didn't know about. Like, yeah, once he shaves again, but yeah. <laughs> oh God! Well, Nick yourself. With Bra- a broad I mean, Brandis has just been tossed around. Kind of thing. He's got a new sword, but it's, I mean, same armor. Actually, same same suit of armor from exactly. from what he's before. So, no, like he so really to nothing really. Brandis looks at Brandis and says, "No sack of Master Brandis is is this rust I see on your armor, or or is that dried blood?" Brandis is like, well, a little bit of uh, <laughs> Actually, that sword looks familiar. Where have I seen that before? <laughs> I don't know! I don't know! It's a new sword! Sort of, I guess. I don't know. Did Damn. you keep that sword? Um, it's it's a full blade. It's a full blade. It's a, it's a bigger sword. It went from a big sword to a bigger sword. No, but um, that sword that was Loreth's full blade. I'm not qu- <laughs> I don't know. Those details have not been worked out. I planned that you didn't because you said you didn't want to because it was a plus three. If if it's a plus three, like it it um <clears throat> No, uh, no it's not. He did not keep Loreth's sword. Oh. Oh. I was just thinking that. Upon so remarking on Rarek's armor and Dan also I recognize that sword? Uh no. No, I, My mistake. I don't. Never Some mind. guy I knew. And he uh looking at Brandis' armor he kind of sees what like appears to be like Salt water damage, and he's just like <laughs> kind of gesture that he says that we've been wading through, water, wading through any uh, open seed floors, or and it's like I haven't had a free afternoon. I, I just need a free afternoon. I need like two hours that I can take care of it. I just haven't had that <laughs> in a year. Him. It's really <laughs> damn, and just laughs. It's been a. Um, he's still like smiling, but he he looks like tired. He's an old guy, like so. Like he's like, leave me alone for a second. God, I like. 
I rest for one night and I get a letter from her wrath. Fuck a dog. God. It's unpleasant. I'm worried about diseases. I don't even know what I should do. What's the protocol? What's the protocol? Never been in a situation before. After about 15 minutes of banter, there's some banter. You see, stepping through the woods towards you, is a raft. He's wearing a very different outfit than you last saw him. Much more, uh. Fancy. Much more fancy. Elaborate, yeah. Uh, a much more elaborate, uh, outfit. It's also just seems completely pristine. Completely down. Looks like he ironed it five minutes ago. <laughs> we know uh, about that. He's got a, a, a big, huge, uh, symbol right on his chest there. That's a big, uh, open book. Looks like some <coughs> sort of, uh, meaningful emblem. And, uh, his eyes glow bright, uh, not bright, but they glow white, uh, along with, uh, you see his, um, his shoulder, um, pauldrons, uh, almost, uh, seem to flicker slightly, uh, of fire. And he walks towards you, and you all see him approach, and he walks completely calmly up to you, and he says, thank you all for coming. Yeah, Arath is, or Damon says, It is good to see that you are well. He says, I received your letters. And uh, he says, uh, the long, he says, long months in bed are, uh, are restless, especially for those who have, who have things to do, like yourself. He says, <clears throat> yes. He says, I have brought here for a reason. Seems to be getting straight down to business. He says, I apologize for the delay in getting here. I had to verify that uh, that all of you are actually you. He says, it is very of the utmost importance that uh, that nobody else be a part of this. Aurora kind of frowns a little bit and like tilts her head and goes, As you said before, but what's this all about? He says, I've made a discovery. He says, I am, uh, he says, I am too weak to, uh, uh, to enter this place myself, and I am calling upon you, my friends, to go there for me. It is for the sake of everything that you do this. I do not expect that it will take as long as our last adventure together. Uh, he says, you guys always get involved in such interesting, important things. <laughs> 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 Damn, I got a... Every time I see you guys, it's <laughs> end of the world kind of stuff. Or kind Damn, it's a... Have you not been getting the letters? It's... It's what he looks for. <laughs> Deliver the mail. He makes a letter. He wanted like, is it a mail. library? It's true. <laughs> is it I was a on a boat for a couple months. Rens I will not be stealing any tomes or scrolls for you. <laughs> <laughs> if this is for your selfish learning, I will not be stealing anything. Where he says, is the temple back? They knew he was joking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, he says, of course, of course, Ren. Uh, and he says, he says, I have uncovered uh, the existence of an extremely powerful ancient artifact. He Ren. says, go ahead. Ren begins to look uncomfortable. At 
And you 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 see Arath look at Ren and he his gaze just fixes on him for for longer than you would expect as he kind of looks him up and down and he says Yes you would know something of things like this, wouldn't you? Uh, Ren says, I have had experience with ancient relics. He says, leans over yes, and says, I thought what? so. And then he just looks back to the group and he says, uh, he says, the short version is, there, uh, this ancient artifact is in the possession of an evil cult. Oh, man. Uh, Bam says... What? He says, now, he says, now I know why you uh, you say it won't take as long as last time. We already know how to get it done. <laughs> and, uh, like, literally at that moment, Bam! draws his sword and he says, point us in the right direction. He looks around, he pulls out what looks like a magical floating compass, and he goes... Ah. And he points... Oh, at God. Dem, like, looks around like, all right, let's go. Ren says, okay, maybe, maybe hold on. <laughs> Like Instead of run, like running into this thing half cocked, where uh, feels similar about that. Get, let, let's hear a little bit more. He laughs a little bit and he says, "Of course, I have not given you nearly the information you need." He's uh, Damon says, "I'm a professional walking and talking." Says, <laughs> "Freaking Damon, a walk and talk." <laughs> um, Arath, he says, "Y'all, you guys are so serious." Does not walk and talk. He's been standing in the exact same position the whole time, and he just continues to stand there. No, you said, I'll walk and talk, but yeah. Right, and he's okay. saying... No, okay, no. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. He's like, saying no, by his body no. language, no. no. I'm not going anywhere. No. Gotcha. Um, he says, he says, this ancient artifact is, uh, is some sort of weapon that, uh, that this cult plans on using. He says, I have been spending the last many months searching for it. Uh, and he says, it has taken all of my power, everything I can, and all that I have learned in order to just, first, to even verify the existence of this artifact, and then to divine its location. Ren says, do you have any information regarding the nature of this artifact? Or the cult? Or the cult. mentions. He says, uh, he says, sadly, I do not know much about, uh, about what it does. All I know is that it needs to be destroyed, and I have the method to do so. He says, what is it? Uh, he says, uh, he says, it is, uh, it is a crown in physical appearance. Damon scratches his head and he says, I did not know you were in the business of destroying artifacts of great power. It does, it seems a bit of a departure from your usual, uh, he looks behavior. He looks back at, at Damon and says, yes, this is true, and not a decision I make lightly. Trust me. I do. He says, I, uh, he says, I thought about this for quite a bit before I decided, to, uh, that this would be the best course of action. I toyed with the idea of bringing it back to my academy and keeping it for safekeeping. He says, it is just, it is too risky. Ren says, have you any inf- information about the cult that is keeping this? He says, from what I know, if you strike quickly and at the location I have... It should not be much trouble at all for you. He says, however, if we take too long, I, uh, he says, I fear that they have, uh, that they have become aware of my scrying and that they plan to move, that they plan to move the artifact soon. 
If they do this, uh, it could be lost forever. <clears throat> Until they plan to use it. <clears throat> Brenda says... Brandon says last. We waste too much yes, time. what 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 delays us? He says. Uh, he says the most urgency will be upon entering this uh, this old temple. You must uh, quickly temple? and hurry to the artifact. Is it the cult's temple or where this thing is? He says the cult appears to have uh, to have taken over an old underground temple. He says they are using it to store it for uh, for the past. Hundreds of years, as far as I can tell. Brandon says, "What does the crown do? Why is it such a threat to stuff?" Everything? Yeah, is this like a world explode, or like someone what? summons who explodes what? the world, or Ta- like town explodes, everyone's head explode, explode, or something? Or? He says, "I do not know the nature of its destruction, but as I understand it, its dis- uh, its power, its ability, its It'll destruction get us potential, a shit ton of residuum." <laughs> The, <laughs> the damage potential me, is enormous. He says, to this plane and the others. Wow. What? Damn, that's serious business. At the mention of this, Ren gets even more nervous. <laughs> For Ooh. he is from the Feywild, which Ren is not on his plane. Yeah, yeah. And so not only will it bone his current home, but it will bone his summer home. Previous home. Summer. His summer home. family's home. His childhood home. He says, yes, I share your concern, Ren. This is why we must destroy it. But this is, are they in Skyclave? Uh, Wait, question first. He how do you destroy it? reaches into Ooh. his uh, he reaches into his uh, into his robes and pulls out Oh God. A wand. Well. And he hands it to Aurora. Or he just puts and his hand just, out towards Aurora. And she just kind of goes... <laughs> and points at Ren. Wand? <laughs> Ren says... Wand? Straw? Okay. Stick? Uh. He says, I've spent the last month and a half researching and, uh, and gathering the materials necessary to craft this wand. Ren takes it and holds it in his hand and says, You offered this to Aurora. Was it crafted specifically for her? Or... He just kind of tilts his head and goes, She simply simply was the first person to ask. Ah, okay. I'm not really a wand kind of girl. He says, Anybody can use it. All you must do is touch its tip to the artifact. Hugh... Gets from his voice, you're not coming with us then? He says, I cannot. Where is it? Where is the temple? Is it in Skyclave? He says, No, the temple is here in this very forest. Uh, uh, Whoa. Like. Right there? Is it over there? (laughs) So when you're pointing over there, you really meant like over there. (laughs) He said, It is but an hour's travel that way. I thought you were being abused, like, it's north. It's right there. Damn, I he says, we've been traveling way too much recently. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't realize. And he's, but sure, he says, actually, now he's in an hour. He says, two days travel that way. He says, but oh. it does strike in me, this it does strike me that uh, such a dangerous object is uh, is so close to uh, to your location. He says, well, did you somehow influence it's, it's, uh, it's being brought here, or 
was it was it pure serendipity that is uh that has made you aware of such a such a devastating object? He says, "This must have been Avandra smiling upon us." To which Ren smiles. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> Heidi says, "He says, well, we got to do what we got to do." Ren looks to Arath and says, "Now, not to be a simpleton here, but just checking. All I have to do." is touch the tip to the artifact, and it will kaboom. He says, I yes. don't have to whisper any it incantations. It won't explode on us, though? It's not going to <laughs> open like up a, a black hole. Machine? You're not just going in because you want us to blow up instead of you. <laughs> we just touch it. He says, if I you... expect there will be some powerful, uh, some powerful warding magic on it. This is designed uh, to penetrate through that and destroy the artifact. I just want to make sure that in your infinite wisdom on this matter, you did not accidentally overlook and say, oh yeah, right, you have to say bippity-boppity-boo at the same time. He I says, thought that was nope. obvious. I thought about, uh, thought about requiring a magical word, but who knows what your state will be in there. Maybe you'll be unable to speak. Okay. Says, Damn why would we be unable to speak? He we says, I make no assumptions with dungeons. Or evil cults. Makes sense. God, Red hates evil cults. A world-ending artifact. He says, I do too, Ren. That's why I've called you. You have much experience. So why aren't you going with us again? He he doesn't answer for a moment. As if Ren he's says, thinking. because the headmaster can't do it. <laughs> he the says, headmaster must laugh. attend to his students. <laughs> he says, yes. Unfortunately, yes, my strength has not completely returned to me. Damn, it's all serious. He's like, yeah, Ren's like, that was uh, me. Fuck, sorry. <laughs> I'm, you know, that's Open why I almost died for you, fuckers. Yeah, it was like, yeah, well, we should have a conversation about that losing a soul later. Everything says, all right. Ren says, after this is done, we could talk for Ren, hours. Ren says, oh yeah, thanks for that, by the way. This is <laughs> for like we, losing your soul and all. Then, then we have no time to lose. Let us depart. Anyone? And he says, I'm glad to be back. Because Ur, I've been Ur looking... smiles and nods and he's like, yeah. I've he been... reaches into yeah. his robe and pulls out another object, a small orb. Hmm. And he oh, just silvery. holds it out and waits for someone to grab it. Ren grabs it too. Or <laughs> does not touch that orb. And uh, It's an apple. He you, says, you can't touch this it orb now. will guide you to the exact location uh, of, their, uh, of their hidden entrance. It is completely camouflaged uh, in the woods, and has similarly required much uh, much scrying to uh, figure out the magic necessary to reveal it to you. If you wield that orb and you get nearby, the illusion should fall. Damon uh, gets a little bit serious all of a sudden and, and says, uh, This cult, who are they? What have they done? And what can we do to end them? He says, This cult, uh, he says, This cult is very... Uh, very evil. They uh, they try to. Um, he says this is. I believe this is their entire operation. They have been guarding this artifact for uh, for quite some time and waiting for the right time for it to be used. If my research is correct, that could be soon. Ren says, "Do we have any intel about their numbers?" He says, "I believe most of their power lies in their secrecy." And, uh, and with this surprise strike, before they have uh, had time to react to discovering my scrying, 
Uh, he says, their numbers should not be overwhelming. You should not find many formidable foes. <laughs> Back away! Just Back away. 11. <laughs> are they formidable? Yeah. What, what? Was it nine one described them as was nine. formidable. Was nine? Yeah. Nine formidable foes. <laughs> I remember that. All nine of them. Now we know All that nine formidable foes is enough to kill precisely one party member. Um, Problem's not. He says formidable. We say, okay. Uh, Who wants to you. die? <laughs> Uh, okay. Damn. He says, remember, do not trust anybody. Now, by anybody, do you mean, like... He says, trust yourselves and trust me. <laughs> he says, <laughs> he says, this cult, they are, uh, they are all about trickery. Huh. Damon says, and afterwards, he says, uh, do we contact you? Or, or do we find, once again, our, our own way to go? Perhaps uh, together once again for some time. He says, "Afterwards, do as you will. This will surely be the last time I will. Uh, I will need your help. My full strength will return soon enough, and I will be able to take care of myself." This was an unexpected uh, turn of events. It's not all the same. It's good to see you. Ren says, "Okay. <laughs> What's well, nice seeing you around? <laughs> Thanks he for the book." Barely cracks a <laughs> smile. And just kind of smiles, almost as if he's foreseeing. Oh, God. And then... Oh, man. And wow. Ren turns around and says, Jeez, What Mark. a dick. Fuck you. And he says, I he opened says, myself up I and I was I believe you vulnerable. have all the information you need. My guard down. All business. And you slap me down the bag. End of the world. Uh, Damon nods and he says, Who's got the orb? Let us be off. He does. And then, the as the you orb. kind of turn to see who has the orb... You see Arath start to fade out, and his image flickers and then disappears. He doesn't even come here. He he. kind of and goes hologram and like blows him away. So like, making a joke as to Arath. He does double. a little bit, like a little bit. Like clearly, it was just kind of like this dust that was left Jeez. over. And Red watches him go and goes, "God, he is a show off. <laughs> oh, he is so awesome." <laughs> <laughs> and we will continue next week. Cool. Huge.